You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. For more great shows like the one you're about to enjoy, visit electronicmediacollective.com. And now, our feature presentation. Welcome to the exciting world of the movies. It's a spooky day because we're back. Anything can happen. After a month's long absence, it was Camp Crystal Lake that brought us back out into the fold. Wasn't it, Trev? It was. And you know, you say spooky. If anybody hears an extra spooky soundtrack in this episode, there's actually a, a thunderstorm raging where I'm at right now. So Amazing. can't think of a, a better environment to uh, to dip back into our, our Friday the 13th uh, franchise run through here. If we would have recorded this a couple uh, hours earlier, you would have heard all the workmen uh, replacing the siding on my house. You would have heard them banging. Mm. You, you probably would have thought Jason was trying to get in the room. Having mean, workmen work on your place can be equally scary. So that's, I get it. Especially when you work at home and you have nine hours straight <laughs> starting at 8 a.m. <laughs> sharp of banging and pounding and wall shaking. Yes. But we are back and we are going back to Camp Crystal Lake. To uncover, uh, this is pretty much, uh, the original title to this film was, well, it wasn't a title, but subtitle, it was Jason's Unlucky Day, and I think that should become the official title at this point, <laughs> because the real um, title, Friday the 13th, part four of the final chapter, turned out to be a complete fucking misnomer, didn't it, Trey? Well, I think like, this is the only franchise that I know of that has two uh, movies with final in the title, and both of them are a lie, so... Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's how long this franchise went, and and I don't even believe you know I've I've, I've watched obviously the documentary um, uh, Camp, uh, Crystal Lake Memories. I've re- I have the book and I've read the book. I, I don't believe anybody involved for a second when they say this was ever even planned to be the last one. I don't right. think that was ever the case. Now they 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 rolled into part five too fast to believe yeah. that, but uh, we'll talk more about that during the movie. Obviously. Exactly. But I'm excited for this one because I would say wouldn't you? This is um. I mean, this is a very a lot of people's favorite entry in the series. Yeah. I'd say this is definitely a very very beloved entry. Um, we'll talk about how we feel about it as we watch it, but uh, I know this is one that people have probably been waiting for us to get to um, after part three, which I know is more mixed. Exactly. So grab your spooky Blu-ray remotes and Apple TV controllers and get ready. <laughs> we I have it here. I'm rolling off the Blu-ray collector's edition Blu-ray. I got it at the two second mark. You should just be seeing the tip of the Paramount logo. This is before this this uh, mountain was a plus, Trev. It was just yeah. a Paramount Mountain. Now it's a plus. But yeah, two second mark. You're just seeing the tip of the uh, the little thing here, little mountain. It's very. I, I don't know about you, Trev, but I've always been taken back by this painting of this logo they did. I think it's beautiful. It's a great painting. I just miss like all these like the '80s logos for every company. Just brings such a nostalgic. Uh smile to me you know but uh yeah i miss the painting version as opposed to the more animated cge version exactly so i'm gonna say one two three go and you hear me say the word go please hit play on your remote remotes in hand everybody one two three go that's right now we got some clouds rolling Mm -hmm. you know i never thought about it as a kid but eventually a couple years i looked up how you know the the old logos how you said paramount a golf western company golf western was a very strange company to uh buy a movie studio but that's what these big corporations were doing they're just buying movie studios for the heck of it in the early 80s I mean, that's you different than today, right? Yeah. Studios are just controlled by other uh, multimedia companies. Hey, wait, go! I thought we were watching part four. Why was uh, we got part two going here suddenly? Yeah, like when I was watching this the other night, I was like, man, like I, I just initially like was so thrown back to uh, part two. Even though the last one we did last year was last August, I believe was part three. Mm-hmm. And so it's like I don't know why for some reason 
and this movie is direct continuity with part three, but like, I have to say, tonally, maybe, this one's a little more classic style, like how part two was. Oh, yeah, I think this is like kind of a return to form, and I think it makes sense to start with the campfire telling of the story. It's like a perfect framing device to get the backstory in, and the thing, I'm sure we said this last time, too, but all these initial Friday the 13th movies start with these recaps, and they were kind of necessary at the time, because home video wasn't a thing yet, so... Everybody going to see this in the theater, you know, hadn't seen the movie a bunch of times on TV or rented it or owned it. So they, they needed these recaps in a different way. I think they only become annoying today when you do what I periodically do and watch all of these over like a week or something. Yeah. And then you're always like, wow, my God, I just watched this, you know? So, but, but, you, but, uh, but yeah, but, you can well, use yeah, this as a, a popcorn break, though. Yeah. I actually found it helpful watching it. I rewatched this yesterday as well to get prepared. It's, it was actually kind of helpful to have this recap. Yeah, so, like, um, the director of this movie, Joe Zito, he hated this. And nobody involved in the actual movie, like, the writer, the director. So so I was, like, kind of thinking, like, how do, you, how do you go about this when you do these recaps, Trev? Like, what scenes do you show? What scenes do you not show? Whatever. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, like, the, the writer, the director, the editor even had no input into this clip show. This was just... Uh, under the supervision of the producer uh, Nick Mancuso Jr. and it was just okay. This is part of your film now. <laughs> Nothing you can it's do a, about it. Frank Mancuso Jr. <laughs> yeah, would I say Nick? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Frank Mancuso Jr. I think they. I, I mean, to his credit, like Frank Mancuso Jr. is someone who knew the franchise very well. He was its steward for a long time, and I think uh, hearing that, I, I do believe this is actually a pretty effective montage. I think they picked some great shots and great moments. Uh, I like this as a recap. It's 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 still brief too. You know it. it it gets to the point quick. It's not like part two, which I think starts with like a, a really long sequence of part one, right? right. So I like this is just kind of gets us in, gets us out. Now here we are heading into the movie proper. And a, a nerdy thing there, Trev, is uh, part three was the only Friday movie, uh, at least up to this point, uh, filmed in 235 to 1 scope. They had to do that because of the 3D process. So you actually get to see the the scope uh, scenes from part three kind of crop down to a mm-hmm. regular widescreen there. And now you know this movie is serious and it means business because we got fucking explosions in the opening credits. Yeah, like Joe Zito was bitching because um, the way that effect was supposed to work was it was like the actual mass was supposed to explode and like you're see, supposed to see it break apart and pieces of the mass come out, but like they couldn't afford that. So you got what you got, which is basically the title, the final chapter, flinging at the mask and then just like a fireball shoots up on the screen. Now, I want to ask you, Trev, what do you what do you feel about, it's very classic, but it's also very cheap, the um, the uh, Friday the 13th opening logo is just white text on a black background. I like it. I was actually just about to say, um, just the optical like credits where the, like, it's got the little wobble on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm, again, it's just, I know it's just because I grew up with this stuff, but, but I love it. I love the simplicity of it. I think it is nice to, especially following that, like... Um, I, I miss opening credits in films in general and like following that little recap. There's something nice about just sitting there and getting ready for the vibe by just hearing the score, you know, seeing the credits and allowing yourself to just take it in and get ready. Um, I, I wish more movies would kind of bring this back. Um, and uh, yeah, and they never had like a really fancy logo or anything, you know, just a little, uh, well, Friday the 13th eventually developed a logo, but I like how these credits are just kind of pure, simple, white on black. Exactly. Sounds like a storm brewing outside here too, Trev. We're both getting spooky here mm-hmm. on Friday the thirteenth. Yeah, they knew the the world knew that we we're going to be watching this. Jason, uh, yeah. So um, I got to talk about this, Trev. Um, 
First of all, I want to say the the, the Screen Factory version, uh, they did a new transfer. The, the original Paramount Blu-rays actually look pretty decent for what they are. But I, mm-hmm. this this particular movie looks very nicely upscaled. This uh, sequence in particular looks very uh, nicely upscaled in the 4K off this new transfer. And uh, this was uh, inspired somewhat by uh, Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. And right off the bat, like, I don't... I mean, I've seen this movie so many times, Trev, but, like, I don't know if it was just because... I was sitting down, I was paying attention, the surround sound was cranked, everything like that at night. But, like, I really got into this opening sequence, and I think it's quite brilliant. And it's like, I like what Joe Zito brought to this, because it's much more than just a straight-up exploitation film. Like, I I feel like he brings these little classic flourishes, like this with this long steady cam shot, which is, they went back to the location of Friday 3, and they're showing the cops... And the uh, paramedics bringing out all the bodies, and it's just really cool in a really like classic way. Well, that connection makes sense because if you visit his entire filmography, of course, whenever I watch a Joe Zito movie, the first thing I think is this guy's like Orson Welles. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, Especially when I watch when I play his Sega CD video games that he directed. <laughs> like no, Mind I like Trap. the sequence as well. <laughs> I really, I really like the. That is the one thing with the recap where you say like maybe the re, maybe he felt like the recap got away from just starting here. But I do, but I I agree that I've always really liked this, the the real direct continuity between three and four, and even just like the first four in general, like how how much they feel of a piece. And I I do like this picking up in the immediacy of uh, of part three. Now it'll cause some like timeline issues later. I think like well, and we can talk about that as they pop up. Um, the timeline gets a little wonky, but again. If you go into the Friday Thirteenth series, you would just have to have some expectations that it doesn't all add up. But uh, but no, I really like this as an opener. Hey, these paramedics that we're about to have like get their own little kind of moment here. Do you think that in the in the world of Friday the Thirteenth, do you think they're friends with Roy or no Roy? Um, I I don't know because the coworkers obviously right. Well, I mean, no, well, it's hard to say though because that could be Roy right in the background right there because there's that old school like ambulance hearse type whereas like these these paramedics like they have the legit ambulance van you know what i mean mm-hmm. but i, I just feel like the entire like paramedic community in this area is probably pretty small but what do i know i guess i gotta say too um i was actually um kind of digging these side characters like usually in these uh like really tiny roles two-line roles whatever like of these low-budget movies I was like actually digging this pair of uh, the paramedics with the. Yeah, uh, I think she has a great like frightened look. You yeah. know, like she performs the sequence very well for such a small role. I, I agree. And I think it's I think it's kind of easy too when you're making this type of film. Kind of what the trend is now, Trev, is like you just cast a bunch of 29 year olds no matter what role they're playing. Whereas like I actually like the dynamic. You have this kind of like older kind of Italian looking guy, and he's. Um, uh, you know, paired up with this younger woman paramedic, and and like he's just like he's seen it all, done it all. But like you, like you said, like this this younger woman coming to this giant crime scene, mm-hmm. and it's kind of funny though, because like everything was with the spotlight, Trev, and, and I mean we know because we know part three, and because they went back to the same movie ranch where they shot part three, but you can't even really tell that's the same house there. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I, it it looks enough. Like I think if you watched it, you know it's a connection. But I do wish, I wish the only the area where I wish they pushed a little further is it would have been nice if they could have got back the actress. Was it Chris? Was the name of the yeah. heroine in part? Yeah, Dana. Like if she had Kimmel, been, I think, yeah. yeah, if she had been in the sequence, that would have really like sold it. You know, just show her, you know, with a blanket around her being put into a cop car. That would have been really nice. Well, it was. I mean, it definitely was not realistic in terms of real life terms because like all the cars drove out of that ranch there at the same time. The cops, the police, which obviously the cops would be there for like literally days on end. But I, but I, from a filmmaking standpoint, I like that they all drove out in the, in the, 
the director held on the scene for like a beat and let it was just a quiet, dark, kind of eerie place. And then we kind of smash cut into them uh, wheeling Jason into the hospital. And apparently there was a, a delete, well, not deleted scene in terms of like they they never uh, got to shoot it. But in the script, apparently, uh, when they're wheeling Jason by, you just see a like a waiting room of some crying parents. And originally there was going to be a scene in that room. Those were supposed to be the, I don't know what character, but those were supposed to be the parents of one of the victims from part three. And I thought that was a nice touch. And I definitely could see like Joe Zito and like his attention to the kind of storyline. He would like to include that. But he said when it came down to budget and shit, like, like, uh, he, like they just never really got to shoot it. Now here we got a uh, good old Sergeant Fackler himself. Uh, Bruce Mahler playing Axel here. Um, so, Goat, I don't know if you are aware of this. I don't know how I'll watch you monitor my uh, letterbox. But uh, a few weeks ago, I uh, made, I don't know if it's a good call or a bad call, I watched the entire Police Academy franchise oh. over the span of like three days. Um, so it was very interesting. It was very kind of cool to come back to this movie and, and be reminded of how different of a character uh, Bruce Mahler is playing here from, from Fackler, who is like kind of like a standout character of the first police academy and he's in some of the sequels but uh doesn't really get his like uh, the spotlight again until part six i believe is when they kind of put more attention back on him um he's like missing from some of the middle ones uh where, where are you on police academy how do you feel about it because i could tell you in a moment how i felt re- revisiting it i love police academy i actually bought the uk blu-ray box set it's region free but i bought the uk box set like back in 2015 or 16 when we started the show with the explicit intention of doing what with police academy what, what we've been doing friday the 13th the last couple of years and it just mm-hmm. never got around to it and i never never really knew anybody else who'd be interested in like watching it so like i might have to draft you to uh, come in once a year and oh, do a police I, I will, academy yeah. with you I'll, I'll go and do it again but, yeah. but i um, yeah like i loved it and it was kind of because i'm a few years older than you trev like it kind of like really hit my demographic hard and i remember by the time we got to three and four it was like the cool thing in my elementary school because there was actually a neighborhood theater, a little two-screen neighborhood theater within a walking distance of my house. And it was the cool mm-hmm. thing when a police academy opened, like you would go that Friday or that Saturday and we would always see our classmates there in line. And it's like literally, I mean, I don't want to over-exaggerate, like we weren't lined up at the block, but it was a healthy line of probably 30, 40, 50 kids and just literally all these 9 to 10 to 12-year-olds in line. And I, I distinctly remember, because it was one of the few times I went to the movies by myself because I was going with my school friends and paying 250 to get in to see one of the police academies. Yeah, no, I remember. I, I, that's why I kind of revisited it. For me, I hadn't seen them in a long time, but I remember how much of a big deal they were when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And I remembered seeing um, 4, 5, and 6 in the theater. Those are the yeah. three I have a memory of going to see the theater. And um, revisiting it, I kind of had the, the mentality of that. I don't necessarily think any of them are like great movies. But for the reputation they have now, I was like, you know, one through four, I'm like, these are decent enough. Like, they're they're amusing. And, uh, you know, they're, but I really, the Mahoney-less entries are, are pretty rough. Uh, yeah. Five through seven. I, five through seven. I, and, yeah. and seven is really, like, one of the worst things I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, those first four, I think, are, are fun to, to revisit. You, you know what's really odd, too, Trev, is um, I grew up in uh, Cincinnati, which uh, uh, Cincinnati is famously the home of Kenner Toys, which was a little... At one time, a small toy company that blew up because they got the Star Wars license. Well, um, they would actually, this is like so bizarre to think this would be allowed, but they would actually pull us out of class. Like when I was in like first, second, third grade, they would pull us out of class. Like you would just get 
you you would volunteer and then like they would randomly choose like some kids and I don't know what the criteria is, but I got chosen one time to go and you basically do for like an hour or two, instead of like sitting in class with, you know, doing schoolwork, you would do a focus group for, from the people for Kenner. And I got called in uh, the, the one time I was actually able to go do it. I got called in. It was for the police Academy line and they showed oh, for the cartoon. Yeah. They showed some, uh, they showed like on VHS, uh, they showed me some clips from the show and then they, well, they didn't have me fill out sheets. They basically had a lady interviewing me. She asked me the questions and stuff. And she asked me who my favorite character was. And I told her Mahoney because uh, she because uh, Mahoney is like Rambo. And she thought I said Rambo. And I was like, no, Rambo. <laughs> like John Rambo. <laughs> Can I ask why you were drawing a comparison between Mahoney and John Rambo? To me, like, okay, that was just my child mind was like... like like I like that he was violent, and to me, he was in the same class as John Rambo. You know what I mean? And I want to say, wasn't there even like a, what, like one of the sequels where like they kind of did a part where he like put the red headband around his head or something? Uh, aren't you? You're thinking of Tackleberry, though, aren't you? Oh yeah, Tack. No, sorry, not Mahoney. Yeah, Mahoney is Steve Gutenberg, right? Yeah, I'm yeah. thinking of Tackleberry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, you're right. That would be yeah, crazy yeah. if I said Mahoney was. Yeah. What's, yeah, no, Tackleberry is great. What's yeah. funny though, when you rewatch the original, um, you know, because Mahoney kind of became like the 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 straight man of the whatever the hero of the series. Mahoney's just a horn dog in the first one. Oh yeah, yeah, of course. Well, I mean, pretty much they're all of them. Yeah. Uh, because we are talking Friday the Thirteenth, I don't want to overlook that we just had yeah. like um, the best, the first like great death, uh, and that is of Bruce Mahler, the the hacksaw to the neck, and then just spinning the head around. Uh, yeah, great, great. Slasher killer. Very simple gag, but don't you think that was an effective use of that? Like the, oh, the yeah. fake song? Oh, yeah. There's a lot of good, like, simple stuff in this one. Like, like Zito knows what he's doing. And there's a uh, great edit here, too. And, yeah, like on her death, where then cuts to the, the mother and daughter jogging. Just the abruptness of that. I think there is, like, I know Joseph Zito gets, like, a lot of, um, I don't know. I, I think maybe because of The Prowler, which isn't the greatest movie in the world. No, it's not. But I think people need to pay more attention to this film. And like, like as you said, how well-directed this is compared to like a lot of the other early Friday the 13th. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say without sitting down and marathoning them all. But I mean, at the very least, I think you got to say this is in the top three best-directed Fridays. <laughs> yeah, I think so. But, uh, but yeah, like... Uh, I guess going back to those death scenes, we got the first like really up-close shots of uh, jason's new hands and i don't remember him having such dirty ass lee press on nails in part three is that just my imagination or was his nails always that gruesome yeah no i think that's kind of a new addition here yeah. like the, the the long nails yeah, yeah. it's his look you know we talked about this obviously already in the first three but his, his look evolves every time it's never consistent um obviously we'll get a lot of opportunity to talk about this this version of jason but uh speaking of crazy looks we also have our first uh the, what do you think of, like okay the tommy jarvis of it all yep. the, the young the young boy who's obsessed with horror movies and is um, you know obviously a little tribute to tom savini he's his, uh, a little monster mask and monster makeup uh, maker himself does it ever bother you when you watch it now like how advanced the masks they put in like are yes. meant to be like yeah okay. it bothered me as a kid to be honest with you too mm -hmm. like really you know what i mean but it's you're kind of like yeah it's a movie it's overblown you know what i mean but yeah. the, the thing is is everybody's like oh he he's he's tom savini he's this like i which i mean obviously that probably was because tom savini did the effects you know these movies but like don't you think also too it's kind of like in a weird way it's kind of like easy out like it's a lot like the kid from salem's lot what do you mean by easy out like it's it like it's kind of like 
like Salem's Lot, you kind of have the thing of the kid who, who he's into like classic monster movies. So like when the when the the vampire thing happens, like you know he oh, knows you mean for for what happens at the end. Yeah, I see. Yeah, that. like 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 it's just it's just because Tommy is into making alien monster masks because he, he was playing Zaxxon and he has an alien monster mask. He understands the psychology of horrors like greatest villain Jason Voorhees. You know what I mean? Like it's. Yeah, yeah, it's a storytelling convenience. I see. Yeah. Now we got to talk about the man of the hour making his appearance here. Mm-hmm. I know you. I know you would join me in being a super fan here, oh, right? Of, uh, huge of, super of, fan. Crispin, Crispin Glover. Yeah, one of my early like uh, weird actor obsessions. I mean, I don't mean like the obsession is weird, but he's like when I got into the idea of just like oddball actor and uh, like you know celebrity personas christian crispin glover was always uh an early like attraction for me of just being like, i love how this guy just seems so strange both in the roles he takes and, and in real life and to this day i'm a fan i've, I've met him i've gone to some one of his uh his you know where he shows his movies and does the slideshow uh yeah just i still to this day will always defend christian glover you got to see the screening of what is it and you got to get mm-hmm. a signed copy of rat catching <laughs> <laughs> he signed quite a bit. He, yeah, he signed quite a few things for me. He signed a copy of Rat Catching. I had him sign my uh, River's Edge DVD, my yes. Willard DVD, and my CD. I have, his, I have his album on CD, which he also signed. Now, I was always fascinated by this car that him, by, by the his scene partner here, Lawrence Monison, who I'm, I also really like too. A lot of people know him, Last American Virgin. But this car is so weird because it's like, what is this car where they're just sitting their heads or hanging out of the back of this car? Was it one of those station wagons that had the giant like roll down back window? Cause yeah, I guess it is. It is really strange. I wonder that too. Cause it almost looks like they're in like a bed essentially yeah. of the car, but yeah, there's like no seats back there, but then I'm like, well that back window is like curved. So like how would the window roll up? And I was like, did they just bust out the window of this car just to be able to film this scene? It's very fast. I would love to ride in a car like that with just my head sticking out of the back of the car like that. But, um, yeah, it's it's kind of weird here, and like not to disparage any of the other actors here, but it's like pretty much with this group of teens, wouldn't you say that the two guys like are pretty much uh, the only ones that really get ample screen time to develop their yeah, characters? Yeah, really the only ones that have an impact. Yeah. Also, by the way, this is a very oddly placed cemetery, and yeah. just strange that the the town decided to give Pamela Voorhees such a prominent headstone and such prominent placement on the cemetery. You can, yeah, you can read it from the road. <laughs> Maybe that was just easier. So everybody could easy access so people could piss on it when they drove by a truck. Yeah. Maybe they knew it would become a tourist attraction. Yeah. So, yeah, so I guess, I guess we have a 50, 50 like cast of the teens here. Three of them. I've never really seen before. Another thing, obviously we have Crispin Glover, we have Lawrence Monison, and then we have uh, the beautiful Judy Aronson, who a lot of people are going to know from uh, the first American Ninja movie, from Weird Science. Um, just amazing uh, that uh, she still looks like this to this day. It's very weird. She must have a picture of Dorian Gray in her closet or whatever. <laughs> but yeah, did you hear the funny story about this lady? They she was named fat girl in the script and they're like oh that's mean like when we cast it let's they made like an extra version of the script that said hitchhiker or something else (laughs) and then the casting director just accidentally gave her the script that said fat girl and and like the josita was like super embarrassed and then she was like don't worry about it i know i'm coming in to read it for the fat girl (laughs) Hmm. that's sad to hear but it is it is a memorable death and you know it's a memorable it's actually a memorable character like so that's one of those like scenes and deaths that i always remember from the franchise and i love actually She's, it's for you know 
One thing I like about Elias early Friday the 13th is they do make the most out of small little characters like that. Yeah. If they're going to give them like a, a future death scene. And I always remember like the hitchhiking sign with like, fuck you on the back. You yeah. know, it, it's, it is a memorable part. So. Cause there was, there was a pretty, you know, uh, attractive hitchhiker in part one and nobody remembers her. They always remember mm-hmm. the girl who ate a banana and got the knife in her throat and all that. I have to say, as we watch them kind of, you know, goof around and hug each other in the kitchen, I, I do really like this family dynamic in this movie as well. I think, you know, up to this point, we've only had groups of kids together. And I always thought this was like one of the best, one of the best decisions of part four is to put a family in the mix and have a family uh, dynamic that's going on. Obviously, we do have the horny kids after the next house over. Yeah. But to have the mom, the single mom with the two children, um, I think just adds something to it. And obviously... Uh, the more you can have it seem like a real town that's not just camp counselors and not just, you know, that, that element, uh, always for the better for me. Also, too, what I really love about the Jarvis family, well, first of all, I guess we got to mention there's Tommy Jarvis, the young son, Trish uh, Jarvis, the teenage sister, and there's Mom Jarvis, who a lot of people claim Stifler's mom was the first uh, MILF in American cinema. Oh, no, but, yeah. But, yeah, no, it, it was Mom Jarvis, Mrs. Jarvis. Yeah, here. yeah. But uh, it, I don't think it's ever explained where the dad is or what happened, you know. But uh, the one thing I thought was cool, like you said, Trev, about kind of fleshing out this world a little bit, is they actually are not there to be a horny, beer-guzzling family. They live out there. Yeah, like, no, that's what I like. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And uh, did, you, did you know about the house situation between the two houses, Trev? Um, in, well, tell me what you mean, and I'll tell you if I knew. So the Jarvis house is a real house that still is there to this day. It's in Topanga Canyon. The other house where the horny teens are, there's actually a fake house that they temporarily built for the movie. So, oh. And it's kind of funny because there's only one shot, and it's like so dark and rainy, you can't even really tell. Like They, they put a shot in the movie, and I'll show it to you later on when it happens, Trev, but... They finally like like they were like so worried that they were going to get in trouble with the director and the writer. They're like, we could have built this house anywhere, but we made them build it next to the real house, and it costs a lot more money to do that as compared to like just doing it on a stage or something. So they're like, we have to put a shot in the movie where it pans over from slowly pans from one house to the next house, so we can at least justify putting the houses together. Because like you could, you, and they pretty much do for the first three fourths of the movie. They just do cutting back and forth. That house across the street technically could be anywhere, you know, and be faked. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And uh, supposedly, I did see a video. Somebody went through that house like recently, like you know, like the last twelve years or so. It pretty much looks the same. Like I'm sure it's probably worth like a billion dollars now because like all houses i mean if i lived in it i would make it look exactly the same you know and then i would just charge dumb horror fans to come spend the night there (laughs) oh oh, you can make so much money trev because according to joe zito um he he went in the house many years later and in uh like 20 plus years later and he said there's still um in the woodwork there's still chunks out where they hit it with the machete so yeah now I gotta ask you, Goat. Yeah. Uh, I know you were with me in, in quite being quite a fan of uh, Corey Feldman, child performer, and even <laughs> yes. a teen performer. But his performance in the watching the girl disrobe scene. Uh, what do What do you think of this? Is this how you would react as a kid when you'd get to see boobs for the first time? Would you oh, yeah. just flip out and jump up and down on the bed? Yeah. I, like I think they should have done that thing where like they cut to like a, a stunt like little person in the pajamas and had him like do a backflip and have him flip so high <laughs> that like his head goes through the roof you know what i mean if they're if they had already been doing like scary movies like in this time period that's yeah. probably like what would have been the scene parodying this that's so. my favorite part when he he, he rears back and he kicks his legs yeah up kicks his legs up yeah. <laughs> 
But here's the nice touch here. So, like, again, I like small moments in movies, and I like the mom's reaction when she realizes he's watching this and she's yeah. not mad about it. She just thinks it's kind of cute, yeah. you know? Yeah. Did you ever have a, a, a situation like that when you was a kid when you saw through a window? Not not at my place. My buddy had a uh, my buddy lived in a house where there was a window in the upstairs hallway that overlooked into the neighbor's uh, uh, backyard, which had a pool. And there was like a, when we were younger, there was the 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 daughter who lived over there was in her teens, mm-hmm. and she would often go swimming in like her bikini. And I, I'm not gonna lie, there was definitely times where we were looking out the window like, wait, yeah. what? You know? Oh yeah, yeah and sure. Like, and definitely hoping like, hey, maybe she'll decide to to skinny dip, which of course she never did, because why would she? It's a suburban neighborhood, but. Uh, but yeah, so like I never the 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 view from my childhood bedroom didn't was just to like the siding of the house next door. Nothing interesting going on. I think this butt shot is a, a homage to part two, right? Like, well, become yeah, it's because it's a staple, yeah. right? But yeah, it's definitely a homage to uh, Kristen Baker, who I think when we said when we watched part two is to me maybe the hottest uh, the hottest Friday the Thirteenth girl. No, oh, yeah, yeah. I have a much creepier version of the of the bedroom window story was. Uh, when I was like probably like about nine years old, my buddies claimed like, oh, there's this house up the street um, and there's like it's like the last one on the street. So there's woods next to it. And like we go there every day and we watch this girl get changed in this window. And like this went on for a couple of weeks and like I didn't believe it. Like I just didn't believe it. And they're like, oh, we're going to go watch that girl and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I was like, what? I was like, I got to see this. So we go and we go in the woods and we look and and lo and behold, there is a house with a window that's open. And um, and there is a girl who starts to get changed and then suddenly looks out of nowhere, turns around, looks out the window, and then we all run away. And I'm like, <laughs> I didn't get to see anything at all, but I'm like, I can't believe that like really happens in real life. You're like, Yeah. But it does. <laughs> I was just thinking to go back a second. You, you asked if the, the butt shot was an homage to part two, which you're probably right, but do you think that the original butt shot in part two and then this is all an homage to the famous tracking shot in Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Like, is that oh. the the butt shot to, like, begin all horror movie butt shots? You know, it, it's hard to say because cause I feel like this version, this one, was a little more true to the homage, whereas, like, part two kind of seemed, like, a little more just, like, look at this butt, look at this butt. But yeah, I think you could be right because it always takes place in, like, a wooded area, kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like... I never understood like really this this point of like why this girl like was like oh I'm going back did she just not want a skinny dip or whatever they were going to do I guess but there's something about this sequence that I actually think like in terms of like the I don't know if it's just a happy accident or whatever but how hazy it looks here yeah like this feels real like real in a way that Friday the 13th doesn't often because I've, I've definitely walked through the forest when it feels like that you know early morning yeah. there's like this kind of haze and then you cut from that to like they're here now we're back into like this just the sunshine and everything yeah. there's something so creepy about how real and how early morning and I've definitely been in the woods and felt freaked out at times like that where it has yeah. that kind of like little fog and yeah like like even though it's real life it looks like a horror movie kind of yeah so I, I guess there's a skinny dipping scene here um i guess is, is, is it okay if i go off topic i think last time we got a skinny dipping scene was part two and i think i went on my cuties rant but um i was i'm, I'm actually getting caught up uh i finally getting caught up on failure to franchise trev your hit show oh, thank you and um uh, I finished Speed. Last one I listened to last night was Speed Racer, mm-hmm. and uh, you know your co-host on Failure to Franchise, Chris. He likes to kind of nudge you about how old you are, 
And yeah. uh, he said, Trev, you're you're quite a bit older than me, so you must have seen The Matrix in the theater. And you, and you clarified, well, I was old enough to actually go to see it in the theater, but I didn't. I just didn't get around to it. Yeah. I'm going to one-up you, Trev. Not only was I old enough to see and did see Matrix in the theater, you're, this is going to blow your mind how ancient I am. I was old enough to go see Bound in a theater. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I probably would have been too. Like, so, like, one thing I think we've talked about this before, if not in like one of these commentaries, but definitely really, it's like one thing that made me such a movie fan is my dad was a huge movie fan. Yeah. And my we went to the movies pretty much every weekend, and my dad never had any compunctions about taking me to see R-rated movies. And then, and the next thing was because of how my parents were just very, very clear with me early on about what is fiction, what is not, what are movies, what are not. I feel like I was always, you know, now because I'll walk into a theater and you kind of dread when they're young kids. Yeah. But I was always a young kid who was just there to see the movie, and um, and so my dad was taking me to see very, very violent or you know, already movies with the nudity when I was young, and I was, that's perfectly fine. I got it, understood it. So yeah, I probably could have went and seen Found with him. I guess I'm glad I didn't. That would have been maybe more awkward than normal. But, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I definitely remember come, coming across Bound on cable and, and watching it a lot for sure. Yeah, I saw it with my dad, but it was like in a. A small art house theater so it wasn't mm-hmm. like you know was like like we probably weren't the only two people in there but it felt like we were because it was just like nobody was there to see that movie you know what i mean yeah but yeah this this movie is full of so many things where um if i was ever teaching like a class on slasher screenwriting right of just because you know with the slasher it's always a very simplistic story and people say that these movies are so dumb and so basic and to a level they're right but this movie is a great example of putting peppering in small details that bring it a little bit more to life and make it feel more real. And like one of them here is the idea of the car breaking down and the teenage sister not knowing what to do, but the young, like the young brother and yeah. sure, her just like relying on him to fix the car. And, it, and then acting like he's probably done this before. Like those are the things that make these characters feel real, even in a movie like this. Yeah, like like it's it's funny too because it's kind of like an '80s whiz kid staple too. Because like I'm in my 40s now, and if my car broke down, I would just would call it AAA. Oh yeah, but uh, but yeah, like back then, like they would always have kids fixing shit, like like hard to fix stuff. No, well, this is the era of that's why Carl Thomas was make, able to make an entire career out of it. The '80s is obviously the era of the precocious kid in, in movies. Yeah, for sure. Now, it's kind of funny because I, I don't know how you felt when you sat down to watch this, Trev, but like, um, I mean, this is a movie I've seen at, at the very bare minimum a dozen times, probably closer to 15 or more. And for some reason, you know, it's just like anything, the mood you're in or anything, like like it was it was a long work day. Like I said, you know, we're having work done, so there was hammering all day. I needed something just to calm my nerves the other night, and this was the that movie. This was like comfort food to me. And I gotta admit, like they really keep Jason, like yeah, other than killing the paramedics and the hitchhiker. Well, not the paramedics, but the morgue people and the hitchhiker. Like early on, I kind of like really settled into a real comfort food, like like easy enjoyment of this the setup of this movie, the first whatever thirty minutes of this movie. And like I mean, I said, this is oh, go ahead. No, I was just like. I really wasn't like I wasn't sitting there hoping Jason would show up. Like I like I would be fine if he kind of didn't show up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. No, because you could easily see this just being like a, a comedy about like these crazy kids across the way from like the the button down family and like the young son trying yeah. to like sneak a peek. And that's a movie that exists too in another uh, universe. But yeah, yeah no, I, I've always, this is my favorite franchise. I believe I've alluded to both on here and on other podcasts and. uh I just this is a comfort food franchise for me. Like even the entries I'm not the biggest fan of. I, any one of them I can if I can put on any time and just kind of get lost in it. And yeah, they don't they don't 
they don't necessitate like a lot of your attention or like a lot of your brain power, but there's just something that's eternally entertaining about them for me. Um, even though there's like a lot of similarities and sameness, especially in like the first, you know, the run of about five films or so. But yeah, I, I, I get it. Like whenever I put one of these on, I just kind of go to a happy place a little bit. Now, I don't know about you, Trev, because um, by the way, just real quick, um, what was the first Friday movie you got to see in the theater? The first one I saw in the theater was Jason Goes to Hell. Okay. Um, the first one I saw was Seven. So I saw Seven mm-hmm. onwards. Whereas, like, this one, like, I, w- like, I wasn't really aware of these in a weird way, even though we went to the movies all the time, because my dad just had no interest. Like, he, they were, like, too lowbrow for him. Like, whatever. And, like, it, like, uh, which is weird, because, like, he took me to all the, the Nightmare on Elm Street films. That was my favorite franchise. But, like, I really wasn't into Friday the 13th, other than I would watch the edited versions on, like, broadcast TV. And then mm-hmm. that would be, like, a big topic. Like, I remember part two being edited on broadcast TV a lot on Sunday afternoons. And everybody would watch it and talk about it and stuff. And everybody, like, Jason did this or Jason did that, like, the next day at school or whatever. But, um... Which that's kind of like hard to imagine now too. That like, cause I remember the Warriors. I know we talked about when we did the Warriors, but the Warriors was a big movie like that too. Where like, like, uh, and they always ran on like the local independent station. It was like before even like Fox was around as a network or anything. And like, it's weird to think that young kids at elementary school would be talking about R-rated movies, but not even like in a cool way of like, of like my dad rented this and I saw this. Like we we were like you know basically geeking out over edited tv versions (laughs) no i mean obviously um again i I, so i apologize for reiterating anything we talked about before it's been a long time since we did uh but uh i'm a monster vision kid i i I was i was uh, exposed to a lot of these early horror movies through the joe bob show on tnt where they were definitely edited and he would he would talk about that he would make jokes about how like you know he'd say how many boobs were in the beginning but he'd say of course tnt made us edit them out um, you know, he, he would flat out admit that that, that scene, you, you wouldn't, we weren't seeing everything. So I, I saw a lot of these probably for the first time that way. And I was also just trying to think of my entire generation and my friends, I bet none of us saw like Friday the 13th in like the right order. Right. You know, it was like, it's just entire, you saw whichever ones came on TV yeah. and you're just kind of piecing it together. Not that the order matters that much, but yeah, mm-hmm. I'm sure it was like a, just a, a hodgepodge for me. By the way, just really quickly, what do you, th- how would you feel if you were the mom and this can get really, this can go into a dark place here when we think of uh, the real stories about Corey Feldman and his experiences in Hollywood. <laughs> oh, yeah, I didn't even think you, of that. I, I just thought of the How would you feel if you were a mom and your, your young son came home with a, with a you know, an a old man in his 20s and just immediately, like, without even introducing him, just starts pulling him up to the bedroom? That, that mom was, I'm surprised she was like that okay with that scenario. Yeah, like we need to talk about that character because that that character was a fan favorite uh, when I was a kid. But but right now something. But maybe we should. Yeah, yeah. we can't. We gotta. We, we'll come back to that. Yeah, we gotta table that. Something amazing in the world yeah. of cinema, and I can't believe we're already to this point in the film. But this is just like, this is the character. Which, by the way, like I didn't even know this for a long time. But Kristen Glover's character name is Jimmy, mm-hmm. and. Uh, he has his own special feature on the Blu-ray called Jimmy's Dead Dance Moves. And yeah, this is... How would you describe this dancing that Crispin Glover's doing here? I don't know if there is any adequate description for it. It's just something that has to be experienced. But of course, you know the story, right? About like... Yeah. On set, it was, it was, it was ACDC, correct? That they were playing? So yeah, supposedly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then they could not... So like, what we see him dancing to is meant to be ACDC, but they ultimately couldn't get the rights to that or, or never intended to. And they just dubbed in whatever this song is, and obviously it does not quite match up. But uh, but not that that dance would make much sense for ACDC either. It's all it's it's entirely Crispin Glover, no matter what. The only yeah, the only ACDC I can think of, and I would have to even look it up, check to see if that song came out. I think it was, but it, like 
because he's doing so herky jerky. Was it maybe he was dancing the back in black? How it's like, dun, 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 yeah. Dun, dun, dun. But you know what I mean. But then again, like I, I think that I think that ACDC story is kind of like because they were talking about it on the commentary track, and Joe Zito claims, and again, how would he know? Um, to quote Johnny Depp, how would he know? Uh, Joe Zito claims that Crispin was doing that dance in the clubs of Hollywood um, at the time, and it's like I mean that wouldn't surprise me at all. You right? So I'm just like okay. I don't think they were playing ACDC in the clubs of Hollywood in the early '80s, so it's like. I think that dance was either his dance or I think Crispin came up with it on the spot and he kind of BS'd Joe Zito and be like, no, this is how I dance all the time, dude. You know what I mean? Because supposedly like, people like, go ahead. No, I was going to say, according to the director, Joe Zito, like they blew a lot of takes because the other crew, the not the crew, but the cast, they couldn't, they were cracking up in the shot because of the way he was mm-hmm. dancing. So, well, they can crack up all they want, but my the point I was about to make is you can, yeah, I know it gets laughed at a lot. People make jokes about it. And there's gifts of it and everything. But go back and like, let's say that's true that Chris McGlover was like actually doing that in clubs. Go back and look at uh, Chris McGlover's like dating history. Look at the women he's dated. Oh, yeah. Like if you are, you know, fairly handsome and you just have a level of confidence yourself and go out and do something that silly, I think people do respond well to it. Um, and, I, and the movie, and I like that the movie plays it that way. Like the girl is amused by it. Like she starts dancing along, like obviously doing her own thing, but they don't play it like what is, she's not like, what is he doing? She finds it funny and endearing. And you know what he is? Jimmy actually is a very, very likable character for everything you know, um, Ted says about him being a dead fuck. It's like, no, like he's, he, why, of course they would like him. Yeah. That's that opening scene where they're in the back of the thing. I was always fascinated the way Ted does the, um, the computer thing on the, on the, the, the case of the beer. And I was always, I was like, it was like a Mandela effect where I swear he did that like two or three times throughout the film. And then you watch it. It's like, no, he just did the whole computer bit. He sold it really good. Lawrence Monison. But I was always fascinated by the sound he makes when he does the fake typing and it wasn't until this viewing that it dawned on me that, like, oh, you dumbass. They just looped in, like, real type <laughs> keyboard sounds, <laughs> computer keyboard sounds. like Because I was always like, how did he get his fingers to hit the boxes to sound like that? You know what I mean? Because it has, like, that plasticky click sound when he did it. Now, this is the only scene that, like, didn't really track for me because, like, Cause like yeah, Crispin was dancing with the girl and like he kind of lost his girl, but he's like they cut away to another short scene of um, uh, Tommy's sister and I think Rob is his name or whatever. But then they come back and like Crispin seems like he's like too down, like he's too discouraged already. Where he was like doing pretty good, he was dancing with the girl and everything, and then yeah, it got broken for a second. So I was just thinking there had to be some like intermediate scenes there because it didn't make mm-hmm. sense that like he was sulking so hardcore all of a sudden. Yeah. This definitely seems like the type of movie where they might have filmed a lot of these people, and then you just decide to edit, like, okay, what stuff is fun? What stuff do we need? Yeah. And then just, you take what you want. Yeah, I don't think it's an accident that this movie is, like, literally exactly 90 minutes long. I, I think there was probably a target there, a hard target uh, to, for the length. But, uh, yeah, it's it's kind of weird because it's, like, there, there was the opening part where, you know, his buddy Ted claims that, uh, you know, Jimmy Crispin Glover lost his girlfriend, which, by the way, he he was with a girl before. He's, it's not like he's, like, the last American version, so to speak. Like, it's actually Ted, which is funny. That's another thing, too, is I always thought Ted was, like, a big stud when I watched this movie as a kid, but now when you watch it, you realize Ted is actually probably the virgin. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, he's the loser, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it's, 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 it's like the whole thing of like other than that part where he or Ted calls Jimmy a dead fuck and then Crispin kind of goes, oh, dead fuck. And he kind of takes it to heart like too much. Other than that, Crispin's pretty studly in this. Like, 
like I was surprised like how handsome he looked, you know, because he doesn't have like the greased down George McFly hair or nothing, and his voice isn't super like whiny or like like he he plays a pretty straight ahead guy in this movie. Mm-hmm. How awkward do you? I I don't know, like it's something I think about now more when I watch it than I did as a kid. But how awkward it would be to be in this house and just see this like this kind of interaction going down. We're seeing with this one girl just so blatantly in front of everybody just trying to steal this this guy away from the, the girl he came with you know it's like it's just so she's like she's this is like one of the bitchiest characters in the franchise right yeah i mean yeah well she, she is and it's just like it's almost like a little it's a little it's almost like a little too hard to believe in all reality of it but it's also like if i was that guy like there's i'm sorry like that that's a choice i would never make <laughs> send send this girl away to you know do whatever like like i get i get the lore of uh new tang is uh you know powerful but it ain't i think they want to play like well it's like the twins thing but it's like yeah but just because they're twins doesn't mean you're gonna be with both of them right, right. and individually yeah they're not uh yeah i think you would i think you would stick with your original choice but yeah they they should have probably flip-flopped some of the casting they had some of the regular which by the way they they say uh the screenwriter was like oh like it was really important to me that you know we don't get like you know whatever professional models they like these should look like normal girls i'm like i don't know like i think the girls are still pretty damn good looking in this movie top to bottom yeah oh yeah I think like the first uh, movie is the is the one where people look real, yeah. and then after that, it kind of moves into Hollywood territory. Yeah. So th- I don't know about you, Trev, because I when it went, I went through the commentary on this, and I went through some behind the scenes stuff, and this story got glossed over, but like it wasn't a big deal. But you know, back in the pre-internet days, or maybe early internet days. This was always one of the the behind the scenes things I always heard yes. about of the, the filming yeah, of the scene. This is the story I always think about because it makes me it makes you respect Ted White so much. Yeah, as a, as a performer, Ted White who played Jason in this. Um, so apparently the story goes like uh, this: is Joseph Zito wanted to do the scene, and this this actress uh, having a skinny dip in the cold, you know, water at night was it was just freezing. And was kind of begging for them to kind of wrap up and, and wrap her up, and he didn't want to. And Ted White was like furious, and he was very, very protective of her yeah. and of like the young cast in general. I've heard, but apparently, he kind of put his foot down. And and as a big, you know, tough Hollywood icon stuntman, I think it kind of got his way, right? Yeah. Kind of kind of say like we need to we need to like give this girl some some attention and, and get her wrapped up. And yeah, it was I always like that story just because you know it's like it's nice to think when the people playing Jason are actually like kind of decent people as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and, and like our man Joe Zito kind of like oh it was freezing and everybody was in bundled up in big winter coats, but she was a trooper, and I'm like uh, that's not the story I always heard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But what are you going to do 30 years later, you know what I mean? Yeah. Ted White, like, we haven't talked about Ted White quite a yet, but, uh, you know, obviously one of the more, one of the early, like, iconic Jasons. And I think it's interesting that, like, he, he feels like, uh, if you get the sense, too, his, like, relationship with this film is kind of, like, it's kind of all over the place. Because yeah. he definitely seems like someone, you know, you hear, like, he was kind of very embarrassed to be playing this part and thought, like, it was kind of below him. But I know he did go on to do conventions and kind of accepted his lot in life as, like, as a Jason um, I hope it would. I hope in his life it, he got to have like some level of like pleasure over knowing that he was like one of the early like kind of favorite Jasons and definitely the one who I think set the standard for like what Tom or it was not Tom and uh, what uh, Kane Hodder would do later. Yeah. So with that kill with her in the um, the boat, Trev, do you think like you know? Because again, I mean, me and Trev were old, but we're not that freaking old. 
<laughs> was this like a thing that style of kill of the piercing like i'm immediately thinking of like when uh, kevin bacon got it through the throat like that slow piercing and seeing the the spear or knife or whatever they use in each particular scene come through the person do you think that was something they were intentionally replicating in each of these movies try to have a kill like that I don't know if they were replicating it because they were trying to pay homage to the previous ones as much as they were. It was it was uh, they figured out how to do it. And so it was like an easy one to do every time, you know, like it's a, like I think it became a go to because once that template was set, it was like, oh, we could do this again. And it's effective every time. You know, every time you see it, it works. Um, it, the, the trick is trying to think of like a new place to have it happen, I suppose. You know, it, it's kind of funny because going back to what you're talking about, Trev, with, with Ted White and, you know, he didn't know, really know how to take it. Like, I know in the past on this podcast, we talked a lot about the, you know, because of what happened with Star Wars recently, the idea of uh, exquisite corpse filmmaking, where it's like just the next movie comes along, a whole new team comes along and kind of does it. But, I mean, Friday the 13th is, like, legit the best case scenario of exquisite course filmmaking because i mean they went as far as to like other than when once they finally got a hold of king hotter like they like all these early ones like there was even a different guy playing jason every time and i never understood like why you know what i mean like why restart mm-hmm. over with the character in every film when the when the character is what people are paying to go see you know what i mean and even this one, like, I think Ted White was already into his 50s when he made this. Yeah. And it's like, and I know he was like, a, he was already like a well-established, well-respected stuntman. But it's, it surprised me you would cast someone in their 50s to play Jason. Right. Like, just for what the role demands. Obviously, it didn't matter. He did the, he did the role. He did it excellently. But, yeah, the fact that they weren't trying to find someone young to, to take that part. And then you could keep utilizing them. Yeah, I mean, just even to the point where it's just like... Even if you're not really thinking like like oh we gotta sign somebody to a five picture deal to be Jason like I get why you wouldn't really think that way either, but like I would just be scared as a filmmaker like or really not even a filmmaker but as a producer to be I would just be like you know like you don't recast Jigsaw in part three you know what I mean like it's always Tobin Bell or whatever it's like but I mean that's but that's a, but that's a face and a personality yeah. right so you can kind of get away with it it's like Michael Myers too right it's a different, yeah. there's a lot of different Michael Myers and. I also don't know, like, I, I, I mean, I've read the books, like I said, watched the interviews, but I don't know how much these early performers were fighting to come back as Jason. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like it was a very, this franchise was always a black eye for Paramount. There was a level of, like, disrespectability to it. A lot of actors have talked about how just being in one of these would make it harder for them to get auditions. So I don't know necessarily that someone, anyone was, I don't, like, Ted White, I don't think, was, like, very upset that he wasn't asked to come back in part five, necessarily, you know. I mean, yeah, it probably was a lot of torture for not a lot of money because, like, Joe Zito talks about, like, they, they would fight him budget-wise on everything. Like, do you have to break this window? Do you have to use this big of a tent, like, when the guy's camping in the woods? But, um, okay, now I got a question for you here, Trev. Um, this guy, uh, I'm blanking on his name, but, um, he comes, he finds his girlfriend, he swims back to the dock, right? He gets a harpoon gun into the crotch, Jason lifts him mm-hmm. up, and then he shoots the harpoon gun. We have never had a harpoon gun set up in this film at all. Are we supposed to believe, because keep in mind, we saw it in the in the, the kind of rerun, you know, the recap at the beginning. Are we supposed to believe that could possibly be Shelly's spear gun? Oh, maybe, perhaps. Like, it was just, uh, like... But like, where was I mean, where would that have been though? You know. 
But we're talking about a freshwater lake, Trev. It's like who uses a spear gun in a freshwater lake? Like that's a that's <laughs> well, like an ocean thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, so there are three. To, to, to my memory, correct me if I'm wrong. There are three spear guns used in because there's the Shelley spear gun. There's this one, and then it kind of comes back and Jason takes Manhattan. There's a spear gun early on on the, on the boat. Uh, where he gets his ma- where he gets the mask uh, from the the couple. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't know. Like apparently, people on Spring and uh, Crystal Lake just just have spear guns for some reason. But it, at least at least the the last one that you said, like at least that was because somebody was dressing up pretending to be Jason. So it's like maybe yeah. they knew like oh one of the murder weapons he knew was a spear gun. This is taking place like twenty four hours after part three. Like nobody knew shit like to have a spear gun nearby. So we need to talk about this character. Um, I want to say his Rob. name, Rob. Yeah. Um, we would, like, my friends when I was, like, 10, 11, 12, the, the, or, or actually older than that, probably, like, 12, 13, 14, my buddies during summer break, they, we always, they always love to, uh, every summer, like, go through the Friday the 13th franchise again. And also, too, because there's still kind of new movies coming out in the franchise in. So it's, like, one of the things we all gravitated to was this guy that was hunting Jason because, as we know, um, you know, he's looking for his sister who's gone. Because apparently, from what people say, parts two, three, and four are kind of supposed to happen in the place the same week or roughly the same week. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts on the Jason Hunter guy here, Rob? Well, that's what I mean. Like, I, so I think the same thing. When I was a kid, I thought that was like a really cool idea. And, and, and I think it's, it is a good idea. And it's a good idea for like a hero of a film. This is what I meant earlier when I said the timeline doesn't always necessarily act like work out because it's the idea of him already being out looking looking for Jason and this idea like I feel like not enough time has passed continuity wise for that to, to really make sense for him to already be this like Avenger exactly. coming to look for the, like that's what kind of bothers me about it and I, I I said this in the episode we did on Failure to Franchise um, and I don't know where you, I don't I, I'm not sure I know where you fall on the, the remake uh, go if you're like a fan of it but the um, the character that Jared Padalecki plays in that, that is obviously, right. you know, uh, very heavily influenced by Rob. I always feel like that was like a, a better version of it. I think the remake did yeah. that character better than we see here. Um, so I like the idea, but yeah, I don't think he's really, he doesn't end up being like one of the more compelling characters, especially since by climax of the film, Tommy Jarvis obviously steals the spotlight and is the character you remember coming out of it. So it good idea, not entirely well executed, I'd say. Yeah, like I, I think I would have respected more and by the way, like Josito said originally he was supposed to have all this like night vision gear and stuff and he was supposed to be more like he was like looking and like you know, searching the woods and like he said the props that the, they made for the night vision goggles and his other gear was so crappy. They just ended up giving him basic camping, camping gear and a gun basically. So like, yeah, if you would have took that gun, like the machete, you can argue like, yeah, he needs it for cutting down whatever in the woods. But if you, if you made it more like where he was just going out with camping gear to look for his sister, like a missing person type thing, I think, I think I would buy a little more. Cause like, yeah, they play it. He, he's, he, it's hard to say, like, because I don't know which way they're trying to go with it, Trev. Because, like you said, like, is he an avenging character? He wants to kill Jason. Does he even know Jason exists? It's kind of like, you know, he has the newspaper clippings and stuff. But it's like, I don't know. Like, we really don't know where his headspace is at quite, you know, you know, in this one. I will say one thing I like more now than I did when I was a kid. Because when you're a kid, you, you uh, tend to gravitate towards wanting more traditional storytelling at all times. Yeah. You know, like, so you're like... And I think when I was a kid, I always thought it was, like 
weird and like disappointing that you set this character up and it's like okay he's here looking for jason he's gonna he's the one that's set up is like this is the guy this is the, if any character is capable enough to take on jason it's probably this guy and then he's just immediately dispatched later yeah and like now as an older viewer i actually love that i love yep. like the irony of that of like how it's like you set this character up and then he's just d- taken out and i actually i really like when movies do that now so i have come around on that i think i think it's funny this funny in a dark comedy way to like be like here he is this is the hero and it's like nope never mind uh, actually it's down to this this uh teenage girl and her young brother to take care of it because he's just immediately gone so um i was gonna ask you Cho, because like i said the other night i was just enjoying this taking it in for what it was with the setup and the characters and like we're at the point now where people are starting to really get dispatched we're like close to the halfway point in the kills of our cast and um do you kind of like when you're watching these and the killing start, I mean, obviously we've seen these movies a million times. We know everybody's going to get killed. We know who lives and who doesn't. But do you ever, like, get a little bummed out when either the killing starts or, like, the one character you like gets killed? You know what I mean? I think we have actually touched on this briefly in some of the other commentaries. I have a memory of us talking about how you know it's an effective Friday the 13th and they're doing their job well if there's at least a couple deaths where you really... Because I obviously said there's your slasher films. We're here to see the murders. But I want to feel about at least some of them and i think occasionally they do that i think um in part two we will talk about um is it I, I, character names like whatever maybe it's mark the guy in the wheelchair and the girl that is going to sleep with him yeah. like those I, think, I think it is mark. Really, yeah yeah i think those deaths actually really bother me yeah. you know because it's like there's she's so sweet with him and you're like really rooting for the two of them and like here the the one that gets to me is jimmy i think like yeah. jimmy's death actually hurts you know not and i don't mean like I, the, the brutality of it but i mean just like you like that character and you feel attached to him um there are certain characters that are just cannon fodder where you're like yeah whatever but uh yeah like i, I don't i wouldn't say i'm disappointed with the killing star because that's what you're here for but actually i want i want the deaths to, to matter and i want to feel something i gotta say it, it, you know going exactly along those lines trev is um Every time I watch this movie, um, like every time, and this time is no exception, is like I do get bummed when they kill like Jimmy, who's like my favorite character and stuff. But I, it's more than even that when it comes to uh, the Jarvis mom. Like when she wanders out and basically gets killed. I mean, she does get killed, but we just they chose not to show it for whatever reason. I, I, and I don't. I've never felt this way in every any other Friday Thirteenth movie. I almost feel like this is crossing a line. Getting taking taking the mom out. Yeah, killing the mom. Like, 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 what is that? Like, you just like you just make uh, Trish and um, Tommy like orphans now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, I mean, I think it. I mean, we'll talk about this when we get near the end. But I mm-hmm. think to whatever they were thinking, I think they were probably using that to set up a move they didn't make, which I'm sure you're, you know what I'm alluding yeah, to, yeah. but, but yeah, I think that's, I think that is part of it. I, I think it does bother me that we don't actually like get to, I know there's like the deleted scene with finding her body in the tub and everything, but it kind of, but even that's oddly, a dream sequence though. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It seems oddly like anticlimactic, like yeah. the, with the stuff with the mom, like that's the only thing that kind of really bothers me. I'm also surprised by the restraint that this movie, cause you said like the mom is like a total milf. Yeah. And I'm surprised by the restraint. Again, this is like the 90 minutes only to play with, I think, but that they never had anything with like any of the, the horny guys over this house, seeing the mom yeah. and like trying to like, come on to like the mom. I'm, I'm surprised it didn't go in that direction. 
Yeah, like I, I kind of thought, I kind of thought that too, because like when the one guy Rob comes over, like he has a little bit of a romantic interest with Trish, but they don't have much time to establish it storyline wise. But I'm just, I, I was just always curious because I mean, he's probably a little bit older than Trish too. Like if you're the man walking in that situation and you're looking at these two women, assuming the mom is single, like. Like, which way do you go with that? <laughs> <What do> you... <laughs> yeah, I guess it depends on your age, right? Yeah. Which, which seems like the more viable option at that point. Yeah. Or do you, like, want to be this kid? Do you want to be Tommy's, like, uh, older brother? Or do you want to have to be his, like, dad? You yeah, know? that's true. I, I think in this scenario, if I was Rob, I would take either or whatever was available to me. Yeah, yeah. You can't, there's no going wrong either way. Yeah. Kimberly Beck, also one of the more attractive uh, heroines of the series, for sure. Which, by the way, this this blue dress, like... Like, uh, there's, like, over the deleted scenes, like, she does some commentary, too, for some reason. And um, this was actually a man's shirt she's wearing through the whole finale of the movie. She mm-hmm. said she hated it. And I think they just did it for continuity-wise because she gets really mudded up and they had to go through a lot of them, you know? So I think just to make it easier, they just gave her a man's, like, really long shirt and they just cinched it up around her waist with a belt. And I was like, I've never noticed that, you know, as many times as I watched this movie, I never noticed that she's just wearing a man shirt. It's a good look, though. Yeah. Even, like, earlier when she was in the car, like, I, I, like, one of the things that always strikes me as, like, super sexy with girls is when they do just wear a long shirt, yeah. kind of, like, no pants underneath and... Not to get creepy, but I mean, we are watching a Friday Thirteenth. Well, movie. it's 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 so. very. I would say like it's like like this scene where she's going through the woods and you see it like it's very like a, almost a little too fashion forward for even a Friday movie because like we're just especially in this era of the early Friday movies we're just used to seeing goobers and cut off uh, jean <laughs> shorts and tank tops. You know what I mean? Yeah. So this was the tent that uh, Joe Zito wanted a slightly larger tent so he could get some better shots and they were like no like to go for the the bigger tent is it's extra 150 bucks so he had a, <laughs> that's why these, these such an extreme close-up on these little tent shots now we're not there yet but i want to preview because i just want to see before because i'm not sure just in case i forget to talk about when we get there this this film does have one of my all-time favorite for the 13th death scenes which i never really see anyone else talk about or like references one of their favorites and i wonder if just by saying that go if you know what i'm alluding to because it's like to me it's maybe in my top five, and I feel like it's not necessarily often like a go-to favorite of everyone. We haven't got to it yet. Do you do you think you have an idea which one I'm referring um, to? I'm trying to think. I mean, my favorite of this movie is as much as I hate to see him die. My favorite is Jimmy, but I feel like everybody talks about that death scene. Yeah. Okay. Well, I won't say it yet. I'll yeah. Point it out when we get. There. You're going to surprise me, but there is one, and just in case it's it, it's a. Uh, I'll, I'll wait till whatever. I'll wait for you to surprise me. But there is one scene where it's, it's very not graphic at all, but I, I love it for realism and creepiness sake. But um, so let's talk about Friday the 13th. That's in general, Trev. And again, this is the fourth time we did this. So we might have covered this on past shows. I apologize if we have. What is your opinion of like, and obviously these movies went on underwent massive censorship by the MPAA, but like what's your thought about like when characters basically just walk off a screen and then like we kind of see a shadow and we don't really see them die, you know what I mean? Well that's why that's what I mean with the mom. Like I, I kinda you it is a slasher film. You're here to see the deaths. The only time I like it is if they do pay it off by like an interesting discovery of their body later. Like mm-hmm. I think if you're specifically doing it for the purposes of us wondering about what happened to that character and then the reveal of that later. But if you're just doing it to like save on effects or you had to cut the, like obviously the one that's uh, 
hurt the most by that is part seven, which is like yeah. entirely edited down and not very graphic at all. Like then it kind of gets on your nerves because that, I mean, as gross as it is, or as it was weird as it is, uh, sorry, Siskel Niebert, <laughs> we are, we are here to, we are here to see the deaths and yeah, sometimes yeah. it feels like a little bit of a cop out. But I think the other thing about Friday the 13th is you usually can't complain too much because you're typically, you might have like one or two of those, but then you're getting like seven or eight other graphic deaths, you know, so. Yeah. It is what it is, I suppose. Look at this Chad Jimmy here. Like, who would have mm-hmm. thought this was George McFly? He's such a hunk in this one. I think it's funny that the stag film they're watching is like basically just women like dressed up in different ethnicity costumes parading around yeah, naked. T- Ted is like way too uh, amused by it. Also, yeah. like he's just been sitting here watching it for like an hour, and he's still just like laughing his head off at it. Yeah, he he seems like somebody who maybe has some repressed urges, and you know his his whole thing about women is just a smokescreen. Like when when we were watching, oh here here it comes here. We do get a little bit of McFly here though when he's screaming for Ted to tell him where the corkscrew is. Did you pick up on I, that? I've, I've heard, and I don't, I don't have confirmation myself because I didn't bring anything for this movie. But I've heard tell that when you meet Chris McGlover and have him sign stuff, he's he's that's one cool thing about him too is he's he's more than happy to sign stuff for this film, and he's he's not embarrassed about being in this. Yeah. Um, oh man, what a great death. Yeah, I know. Um, but he had, I've heard that he will sign if you bring a poster or something. He says he signs, "Hey Ted, where's the corkscrew?" Chris <laughs> that's McGlover. awesome. I would love to have it. Yeah. So so that was obviously one of the great like whatever tricks of. Um the reverse shot there so they have a a meat cleaver that's half carved out and they just press it against crispin's face and they pull it away but then they reverse the shot and make it looks like now jason's going on a killing spree because we just saw ted like die like four seconds ago and i have to say like this is this is probably my least favorite death scene in the whole movie because it seems like almost like at this point jason is just teleporting around like like all of a sudden he's on like the trellis, you know what I mean? Okay, this is the but uh, here's the thing, Chris. This is the one I was talking about. This death scene, really? here, I I love this, and I get what you mean about how he's just there. But look at like the brutality of this, like of her just landing yeah. on the car and the window smashing out, and just and like it's a stunt performer, right? like that's not a dummy, like how real that yeah. looks, and just like the simplicity of it. I in, in like a series that is known for like very elaborate, very gory, bloody death scenes. The realism of that and just the simplicity of it and how painful it looks, I love that. I never seen anyone else talk about the death scene, but I think that's like one of my top five Friday Thirteenth death scenes. I, I I really love that. I, I don't I don't disagree that it's weird that he's just suddenly up there, yeah. but just the just the visual of it I think is is amazing. See, I I think that would be great if like we just didn't have the the Jimmy scene like a second ago, or if maybe if even if you like reverse the whatever, whereas like Jimmy goes downstairs and he's been watching through the window the whole time, and then he gets her, and then maybe later, you know, a couple minutes later he gets Jimmy. But like, I was watching that this time and I was like, like why the fuck is he craw- crawling up on the roof all of a sudden when he was just down in the kitchen? You know what I mean, like. So yeah, so Trish finds out Rob's like whole mission of why he's really there. He's not really there to hunt bears in the woods of Crystal Lake. Uh, again, I thought that was a mind-blowing storyline when I was 14, but I, I, it's not bad, but I don't know if they really sell it enough to make me buy it. You know what I mean? Now, to go back to what you just said about like him just like teleporting and being on the roof, I, I wanted to ask you too, this is I, I was meant to ask this earlier, but this is a good time because not much is happening here. Um, of course, the, the the general accepted knowledge of this franchise is always that it doesn't become supernatural until part six with Jason lives. Yeah. 
But have you have you often felt like that's kind of a cop out statement, and that by especially here in part four, Jason is already pretty much feeling like a supernatural character. I mean, like, how could he? How could his body be taken? Unless you believe that these paramedics in this town are the worst paramedics in the world. Yeah. Like they did not check for a pulse on him or anything. Like yeah. wouldn't he, like he would have had to be dead to like go into the morgue at the hospital, right? So like, and and suddenly he's like kind of revived, and just the the amount of damage he can continues to take. I feel like they were already kind of moving into pretty much supernatural territory. Yeah, as, as a kid, as a kid, honestly, Trev, um, and I think Adam Green kind of elaborated on the whole Jason thing when he did Hatchet and he made Victor Crowley a repeater, so to speak. Whereas, like, you can really kill Victor Crowley, but then he just reappears the next day. Like, when mm-hmm. I was a kid, I actually took it to heart that he really, Jason actually, like, his real form, like him being a good person, like an actual real human being. I actually believe he did really like drown and die as a child. That's how I always took it as a kid. Cause it's like you watch these movies. I mean, he took an ax like to the front of his skull in the last movie and he's yeah. like, he just shrugged it off. Like there's no way, you know? And like, I like the one thing and maybe we'll get it. Maybe we won't. Who knows? But, like, I've always felt that with this, and I'm I'm just so sick and tired of fucking Halloween going on for 30 movies and never introducing a supernatural element whatsoever, like, at all. Well, I mean, <laughs> we got the, the, the Cult of Thorn. Yeah, yeah. But even that is just kind of more about controlling Michael, and it doesn't even really say that he's undead, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, Jason. By the way, we, we get a dummy here. And um, I don't even know if it's really, like, was it necessary? Like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't, probably not, but maybe they didn't yeah. know a better way to do it. Yeah. yeah. I, I will say to what you just meant, and I know we, I, you and I quite disagree on Halloween Kills. I think you actually like that one, whereas I did quite did not. Um, oh, you're a Halloween Kills hater. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but for me, that was definitely, like, the cop-out of, like, I thought the end i because I, I remember hearing like they were gonna like there was an early talk they're like oh you, the end does something like so shocking and i still i i want and i have heard like the initial cut that some people saw early on had a much more heavier insinuation that they're like no there's no denying michael myers is like a supernatural character now yeah and i and i think they chickened out and, and cut that out and i thought that was what that movie needed was to say because i thought that that's what i i i i convinced myself maybe foolishly to think what david gordon green was trying to do with his trilogy was make a trilogy that kind of like ends up reflecting like the entire series and like what everyone likes from the series, like put into like three movies. And so I thought he was going to do a thing where it's like, yeah, the first one was like his homage to just like the simplicity of the first one. And now suddenly it's going to be like, no, now I'm segueing into we're saying he is a supernatural character, setting us up for like a batshit insane third entry. And then I think they just chickened out at the end. And, and so, yeah, I'm with you in that. I think the, I think that series needs to push in that direction finally, yeah. even though they seem they seem hesitant to do it. I mean, it it kind of is always loosely there in terms of, like, they always have them stay catatonic until Halloween night. Okay, what kind of mentally ill person just... <laughs> just because the day on the calendar, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I feel like these two characters here, and again, I'm, I'm blanking on their names, but these two characters here were the most shortchanged out of the group. Like, they got the least screen time, and then they just kind of... This guy looks like a young Robert Zadar. yeah. Uh, the girl's name is Sarah, and I forget this guy's name, but like, yeah, he does look like a young, more handsome Bobby Zadar. Um, but yeah, they they get shortchanged big time here. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you think about this kill? Like, considering Joe Zito did the Prowler, right? 
And uh, the only redeeming quality of that is the uh, shower kill. Mm-hmm. Why is this one so weak? Or do you think it's weak? It is weak. I mean, compared to that, for yeah. sure it is. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's not. It's, it's definitely not a highlight because even you said these characters kind of shortchanged. Not even that even goes to the, the kill here. But no, okay. Here, here we have. I wouldn't really say it's a homophobic joke. It's more of a prison joke about dropping the soap or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the reason I bring this up because I mean, fuck it. Why not? We talk about horror movies. We talk about shit. We're not scared. There was a little bit of controversy with Halloween Kills that uh, Michael Myers killed a gay couple and people were like, oh, like that makes him, um, makes Michael Myers, a, I don't know even what you would say, I guess a bigot in some sense. Do you think Friday the 13th could uh, handle, survive, have not have a country? Like, do you think Jason could get away with killing a, uh, you know, like a teenage uh, gay couple? You know, it could two men, two well, women, who, whatever. Yeah, you know. I mean, I'd like to think he could for the same reason I hated that controversy of Halloween Kills. Like, I didn't like the movie, but that was such a dumb controversy because Michael Myers kills anyone. <laughs> he's, yeah. not, he's not upset that Big John and Little John, who, by the way, I did love them. Like, they were, I, I, uh, I do like, see, that's the thing. I like when David Gordon Green indulges in very bizarre David Gordon Greenish stuff. Yeah. Um, so I actually liked Big John and Little John. I thought they were, I, I like, like many other people, I found them to be very amusing and very funny. Yeah. Um, and I actually was bummed that they died, but I did I did not look at it as a hate crime. <laughs> I looked at it as <laughs> Michael Myers doing what Michael Myers does. I don't think he cared if they were gay. Uh, so yeah, I would actually, I think that's a, probably an important step, you know, just like everything else. Uh, if, if if we finally get our wish and somehow Friday the 13th comes back, uh, come on, LeBron James, you're, you're sleeping on the job here. Oh, God. Le- um, yeah. Do we have to wait for no... you to retire from basketball or what? <laughs> there's there's uh, there's no reason not to have a more like multicultural and more like kind of sexualities represented in, in the group of characters. Yeah, it's like to me too, especially from the viewpoint of the characters doing whatever, the, the, the murderer characters, the slashers. I don't even know if you look in the framework of both Jason and uh, like Freddy Krueger will definitely know. Like Freddy Krueger will know if you're gay or straight, mm-hmm. and it, and he will explain it because he's an asshole. Exactly. Thing too. Yeah. Exactly. Like Freddy, Freddy, if Freddy knows you're a gay teen, like like he'll like disguise himself as like the hottest guy in your school, and then you'll be making out with that guy, and then all of a sudden it'll be Freddy Krueger. Like he will. But, like, I don't even think, like, Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees, I don't even think, like, the concept of inner human relationships, let alone, so, yeah. you know, like, I don't I don't think they grasp that, really. Like, like could you imagine the terrible scene of Michael Myers, like, they, like right before he kills uh, Little John and Big John, like, they flash back to 20 years ago, he was, like watching the first gay kiss on St. Elsewhere and they see him <laughs> like he clenches his fist in his handcuff shackled hands you know like come on like well but at least if we saw him watching St. Elsewhere then we would know that he's not part of the Tommy Westfall universe so <laughs> exactly that'd be that'd be good well we were talking for a second there that, that one girl uh, Sarah she had a towel wrapped around her and uh, uh like like that that kill kind of made me groan more than anything because it's like just like I was like I had a little bit of a problem with Jason teleporting up to the roof but this time he just talk about a great aim he he throws an axe through a door it explodes through the door and hits the girl directly in the chest like yeah I'm, I'm pretty like I have to tell you I was actually yesterday I was uh, I was out axe throwing Really, and so I, I can attest to the fact that that's pretty impressive because my my aim I I don't I definitely would not have made that kill shot I'll tell you that based on my experience yesterday. 
Yeah, like if that girl was six inches to the right or left, like she mm-hmm. she might not have got a dead square. The outtakes of that scene are funny though, because it's it's obviously the gag is she's got it, the axe embedded in her already, like in her towel or her prosthetic, and they're just like trying to throw sticks of the wood at her, and they're like realizing in the outtakes like this isn't working because it just looks like we're throwing sticks on her face. So that's why they went to the reverse shot where they use the air cannon and actually blew out the whole door. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so this is this is like what we were talking about before, like. Rob is supposed to be the guy who's going to stop Jason, or at least we think he's the most manliest man. But he's, he goes down in the basement, and he gets killed by Jason pretty easily. And I actually thought this was a great uh, kill in terms of, like, you can hardly see anything because it's so dark down there. But I actually, and I heard, I've heard some people actually kind of mock this scene, but I kind of love it that he just, like... He's screaming, and then he starts screaming, he's killing me, he's killing me. Like, what did you uh, think of this? I'm in the camp that doesn't. I like, I, I, here's the thing, I like this death in terms of, like, what it means. Like, like I said, I like that he's just easily dispatched. I like what you said about how it's, like, in the dark, you don't really see it. Uh, so our buddy Bird, who's also a, a guest on here, a frequent guest on here, um, him and I have kind of joked about how, like, in the, the fan commentary of this with Joe Green and, and or Joe, uh, uh, Joe Lynch and Adam Green. Yeah. They, t- they talk about how it's like one of the most chilling things they've ever seen and heard. And I've seen and we've seen other people say that. And like Joseph Zito has talked about how it's like based on a real case he wrote he read about with like a somebody being killed and screaming that. And I, I, I guess if you're really experiencing it. Oh, we need to talk about the dog yeah. in a moment, too. But but uh, I don't know. I don't I don't find it very scary or chilling. I just I find it kind of I don't want to say silly, but it just doesn't does it, it, this the him screaming. He's killing me. doesn't really work for me i don't i don't feel any like emotional pull by it or anything so it doesn't it doesn't really work for me that much but because i have heard that commentary with green and lynch maybe that subconsciously maybe I, maybe that was stuck in my mind and that's why it works so good for me this time now yeah we got to talk about the dog because he just flew out a window like literally flew. This is the smartest character ever in friday the 13th so joe zito was saying f out yeah like okay that's exactly what i always thought trev he just jumps out of the he's like something's wrong here i'm jumping out of here because it's it's my understanding that at this point jason is down in the basement with rob about to kill him but apparently there was a blowback with this where people thought that the dog was thrown out the window by jason which it doesn't make any sense because jason's down in the basement at the time yeah it also just doesn't look like that like yeah. it very clearly is the dog jumping through the window which is that's the way that they meant to shoot it because you can see on the outtakes like they actually the dog jumps and breaks the glass but mm-hmm. he like he doesn't quite clear it so you know he kind of like falls backward he doesn't fall but he like his hind legs fall backward and he's just holding himself by his front legs and like they're trying to get him to jump out the front, so like then they got another take of him actually finishing jumping out. But yeah, like he was never he was never supposed to be thrown through the window. Now I think it is true we never see him again. No, so he no. could have got hurt by that or possibly even killed by that. But um, yeah, it's, Jason did not get him. He was not a victim. That would have been a great scene at the end of Friday the Thirteenth Part Six when mm-hmm. um, the Tom Matthews version of Tommy Jarvis is fighting Jason. If like the old ass dog had suddenly oh. run out of the woods and like made the save, like the continuity would have would have been incredible. Now this might be a little too goofy for you, Trev, but um, like yeah, Gro- what was his name? Grover in this? The dog was Grover. Oh, I don't know. Or Gore. I'm sorry, Gordon. Gordon, Gordon is the dog's yeah. name. I actually would have liked it if um he was like a super smart dog and like somehow like he helped like defeat Jason in a way. Like I actually would have mm-hmm. been down for that. Like if he, yeah, it's fine. if he unlocked a door where they were trapped or he did something, you know what I mean? Like he helped them. Like the Hills have eyes dogs. Yeah. 
So yeah, the, I, I did want to say, but I, this is what I thought. And the, J- he, Jason kills Rob with one of those little hand scraper things you use in the garden with the three prongs. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that was like uh, a scary thing as a kid, like using that. Because we actually did a, do a little bit of gardening on the side of our house when I kid. When I, I would dig up the ground, I was like, look at that thing. I'm like, ooh, this thing looks evil. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> They're not really sharp, but... Yeah, it is. I mean, the, again, the, the 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 pitch black comedy of it, just really like what was going through Rob's head, and just in that moment of like you've dedicated not your life, but at least the last week to like this mission, yeah. and just to have it like be over that simple. I also like that after the death, Jason just did just went right back under the stairs and put himself in the same hiding spot that he used earlier. Yeah, because like, he was. Well, this worked. This worked five seconds ago. I guess I'll just do it again. He, I mean, it's kind of. I mean, I guess it's not smart if it didn't work, but it's kind of brilliant. Yeah. Okay, so this is me being a big dummy here. It's like, okay, that's Jimmy. I never realized it was Jimmy for some reason. I don't know fucking why. It wasn't until this watch where I'm like, oh, shit, that's Jimmy. That's like, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever nailed up. Because, like, you can clearly see it there. But when Jason comes out and just pushes him out of the way later, it's, like, way quicker. I don't know why I never put two and two. Well, and again, remember, we spent the majority of our lives watching crap transfers of these movies. That is true. That is true. Cause, cause there was a lot of shots where I'm like, in this, in this uh, movie of this, uh, this whatever, this movie, this transfer that's on this Blu-ray, and I was like, this is a really good looking movie. Like, this I, looks great, yeah, yeah. It, like, it's, it's very cinematic. The lighting is very good. And it's kind of funny when you watch like the outtakes or like the the lost whatever. Um, when you see it, when you see the footage untreated, Trev, it's amazingly clear, but it's like really bright. So like with the color timing, they really darken this down in post. Yeah, see, like when he pushes Jimmy off the things. But uh, now we're getting into the whole sequence here, where to me this is like uh, Ted White as Jason. All this stuff coming up is just what makes him like one of the best Jasons. Like it's, it's so iconic. Like I I know like Kane Hodder often gets credit for being like the first Jason who had like this kind of look of like being so like. Um, just like mean and mm-hmm. kind of you know like an intense, but no, that's that's what Ted White's doing here. Like when he comes bursting to the door, just the physicality of it, it's just he's so scary in this, in this climax. And right there, b- bursting through the the window, yeah. it's it's all great. Yeah. So that moment when when Jason used Rob's body to break out the window of the Jarvis house, that reminded me so much of when he busts through the window in Part Two. Did you think that was possibly an homage? Perhaps I, you know, oh man, that busting through the door is one of the best images. Yeah. I love when uh, he I to the hammer. Throw the hammer, yeah, it's all great. Um, perhaps, yeah, I don't know how much they were already thinking about homaging themselves, or how much just the same gags kept being brought up, you know, yeah. in like the, in the mix as everyone's sitting around. Now I'm trying to spot it now, but Joe Zito says that people complain about the continuity of the. Uh, oh, I see what he means. One of the toys fell down, and now it's back up yeah. there. But he was saying the kind of. I, I like I would look at that and I never noticed it, but it was just that one little weird flying lion thing that like whatever. I mean, if that's if that kind of stuff is bothering you in one of these, yeah, you know, like that's what he said. Now, Trev, um, besides being a video game um, kid and a monster mask kid, um, apparently Tommy was supposed to be somewhat of a inventor, and J- and um, Tom Savini had come up with a gag where uh, supposedly uh, Tommy had a microwave oven he took apart and he was like using the microwaves like he could focus them and we would see like on a low setting earlier in the movie he would melt like a gi joe action figure 
and then later he would turn it up to 10 and point it at Jason's head and partially melt his head. Like, <laughs> I can't believe that's an idea Tom Zavini had. And I have to say, like, it's it's intriguing and it's bizarre, but I'm kind of glad they didn't use it. Yeah, no, I'm glad that we do not have uh, the, the, the super microwave. That's yeah. fine. I just thought this was brutal where she throws the monitor on his head. Like, I don't know how they did that. I mean, obviously it was breakaway glass or whatever, but, like, that just looks like it would kill Ted White's head. Like, it's also interesting that I know, like, um, people talk about, like, with uh, Friday the 13th Part 6 is the first one that actually has kids at the camp. Mm-hmm. And then you often hear when people talk about this franchise, this, one of those things like the Barabbas people say this, uh, well, Jason would never kill kids, though. He just kills teenagers. He'll, like, leave kids alone. But, like, people, how quickly do people forget that he spends the entire last, like, 10 minutes of this movie very much trying to kill Tommy Jarvis. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it does not seem like he's like, no, I'm just going for the sister. I think I don't think Jason cares. I think Jason is a pretty equal opportunity. Now, on the special features, I was kind of shocked because Joe Zito had glowing praise of Corey Feldman as a young actor and as a young person, but Ted White had no bones about it, made no bones about it. He, he said that uh, Corey Feldman was a mean little kid and he wasn't well-behaved. <laughs> Doesn't Ted White strike you as maybe just like a grumpy old man? I mean, he was like he was in his mid fifties when he made this, so yeah, he definitely grew up. See, I love that look where he's looking between the two of them. Yeah, like I remember Ted White saying that he decided to play Jason like a cowboy, and I kind of see that. Like, well, Ted White was a cowboy himself. Yeah, right? so that makes yeah. Like he kind of, and I love. Uh, I believe it was Richard Brooker's portrayal in Part Three. I love Richard Brooker's portrayal. But it's, it's like that weird thing, as much as I'm a stickler for continuity, and I love that they showed the ranch from part three at the beginning and stuff, I kind of do like that each movie has its own tone, and like maybe the variations in the Jason, Jason uh, performance actually work for each movie. Like Maybe you do have to kind of tailor your Jason just a little bit to the, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the film that it's working in. That's what I was thinking about. Like I know um, and there's a lot of broken windows in this movie yeah um the the, I know, the twin gordon and now trish yeah uh oh you can see the pad there yeah. that's too bad but um i know the controversy and i do i do feel bad for kane hotter about not being able to be in Freddy vs. jason and i yeah. and i but I, i've never understood people just immediately dismiss that movie because of that or and i have to say when i watch that film which actually is one of my favorite entries in the franchise I do sometimes agree with like the thought that I don't know that Kane Hodder's Jason would work for what this movie is asking of that of Jason to do. I actually yeah. think the uh, the version of Jason in that um, the the is a Ken Kensiger or whatever. Yeah, uh, Ken Kensiger. Yeah, yeah. yeah who, I who, think... who, by the way, he's also in another Friday movie. Remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, but I actually really like that Jason. I think yeah, I think every actor does bring slight differences to it. I never understood why that shot was slow motion right there of Jason walking. Yeah, I didn't either. Uh, yeah. Ooh, bad wig here. But I also, yeah. uh, if you're, like, I like people being bothered by like, the toy on the shelf. But I've never seen enough people talk about how we, how much hair Corey Feldman has, and then like a, just a quick cut to it, like it's all gone. You well, know? not only that, but they like, showed him dunk his real hair in, and it, and it was like dripping wet his head, and then all of a sudden he's cutting a dry wig off. <laughs> yeah. But it's just like it's yeah. This it it, it stretches credulity a little bit that he comes up with this plan so quickly as you said that he could just like be like oh if i turn myself into jason obviously this is homage to the past right we've already done like the putting on a sweater they always wanted to come up with something but this one's a little bit of a stretch but isn't it weird though like uh, granted this could just be my great effect here with the split hand but um that's finally the monster hand kind of works there but um it's weird because, you know, these little points where I've been saying, hey, Trev, do you think this is homage to part two? Do you think this is homage part two? 
it's like the the thing with Tommy is definitely an homage to putting on the sweater in part two. Yeah, yeah. And I just think it's weird that everything is homaging part two. <laughs> I just think it's also weird, like on a conceptual level. Like I get why Jason would be stopped by his mom, mm-hmm. but like the idea of him being, oh, look, it's me. I don't know. It's like it's it's, it's yeah. bizarre. It's it's a weird story beat. You, you know, it's weird. It's you know. I'm generally not a person who's like, oh, this held up when I was a kid, but now it sucks. But this is one thing, again, I thought this was a genius storyline when I was a kid. And, like, now I'm just kind of like... He he even changes into a wardrobe that he didn't have on before, too. It's strange. Mm-hmm. But um, this is, like, another thing when, like, yeah, I'm with you. I'm like... I don't know. Like, I don't... And he's saying, Jason, don't you remember me? Don't you remember me, Jason? It's like, this is something I think would confuse Jason for a split second, and then he just would go right back, turn yeah. around to killing Trish. Like, Do you think they're ripping off the Myers head tilt a little bit there? Or... Rip off, or just like, what else can you do to like, yeah. to like represent some being intrigued or interested in something? Nope. Now what? Do you, okay, now Jason is finally unmasked here. What do you think of the part four Jason uh, look compared to part three, which part three was a mixture because they did one makeup and mm-hmm. then they changed it halfway through and they did stuff. He's... I, I definitely, pre- I definitely prefer the part four yeah. the, of all the, un- this is the first, like to me, this is the first unmasked Jason that, that I love. I think this is like, this is like my iconic Jason look. I think he's a little I'm almost like in this one, like it, it's clearly trying to have some continuity with the part three look, but don't you think this one's like more like, I don't know, like if zombies the right word, but like he's got like more it's like scarring. Go- almost like goblin. Yeah. Like he's like goblinish. Like yeah. Kind of looking. Oh, this is great. Yeah. Sliding down though. But yeah. Yeah, that's sliding down. It was like, how do they do that? You know, it's just like that was like the the special effect that we we couldn't believe as kids when we mm-hmm. watched this on VHS. Mm-hmm. Really, the uh, the show the showstopper scene there. No, okay, like. We're pretty much at the point now, pretty much wrapping up the film. You know, we get a little bit of a twitch of Jason, um, and then Tommy goes crazy. So this this really was, we didn't talk too much about it, but this really was supposed to be the final Friday, at least during the conception point of this film. For some reason, Paramount, they were making tons of money. They were tired of making money because, like, they figured they could go make some more money without taking all the flack that they got for these films being so... I guess graphic and you know at this time I mean really what was that backlash do you really know Trev like other than just Siskel and Ebert bitching about these films I mean was there a backlash because I'm sure people who owned movie theaters probably liked it <laughs> with everybody coming. yeah well that's the thing right that's why Paramount like I don't think the backlash like they, they put up with the backlash because the, the money aspect was always good for them but I think it was just like probably still like some old traditionalists you know being in charge who you know were embarrassed just by the content of it if enough critics complained they felt ashamed, but I don't know. It, obviously, today that wouldn't be an issue because everyone's just way more craven about money in general. So, yeah. And then what's what's weird is um, Joe Zito said for all because people are like, oh, like this or this, where where you're trying to leave a little bit of a wiggle room just in case. Joe Zito said no. Like the whole time he was shooting this movie, he said the only thing is originally the studio like got weird with. Um, the way they were going to do Jason, like they were going to 
like the way he does the slide down the thing it was originally he was supposed to get cut like more down the middle and it was almost more like his head was supposed to get split like three-fourths of the way down i think like like maybe from the top of his head down to his mouth almost to the point where it's like there's no way anyway i mean first of all nobody could could survive sliding down the machete in their eyeball the way he just did but they were like, no, no, uh, you know, have it be on the side and not be as deep this way and this shit. And he 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 said when when he got the feedback on that, like he knew that they were like having second thoughts about it being the final one. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Now I, I've watched this movie many many times in my life, goat, and I don't know if until the last night watching it for this, it was the first time I might have thought. I don't know if what you're what you're thinking is on this. Um, why exactly is Trish in a hospital bed here at the end? Like. Like, well, it's that, like she did she did fall off a roof though I remember yeah she, she seemed to recover from it but it didn't seem like she had any injuries that would necessitate necessarily being hooked up to an IV in a, in a hospital but Other things, well it's hard to say too because originally I, I guess we should talk about the lost ending right mm-hmm. so the lost ending um pretty much you know it, it it was supposed to cut from that that white fade out from tommy just hacking uh, jason over and over it was supposed to cut to the next morning and and i really like this and um i don't know if it's on all the different blu-rays but it's definitely on the screen factory one it's kind of like they show the aftermath a little bit of like all the destruction and shit and like trish and tommy are just passed out on the couch holding each other like they just you pretty much collapse in exhaustion and jason's just laying there dead on the floor and Trish gets up and she goes upstairs and she finds the mom in the bathtub. And I'm just like, well, this is kind of like a good, like emotional ending, whatever. And But then the mom opens her eyes and they're all white. And then Jason comes through the door and then she wakes up in the in the hospital bed like we saw there. And then, you know, I assume the same thing would happen. But uh, th- I, I'm glad that it's interesting to see that footage because, you know, it's, it's very interesting to see that could have been the ending. But, um... I like the ending they use better, but at the same time, we need to talk about it. Um, well, maybe we don't because we still have two more Tommy Jarvis movies to go. But that whole teasing of like, oh, Tommy might be the next killer. What's your thought on that? It's just a concept in general. Like we know they didn't actually go that route. But yeah. We, you know. No, I, I do want to talk about it because I think it's it, to me it's always one of the more interesting kind of ideas of Friday the 13th because um, obviously as a Friday the 13th fan, Alec Gillis and Kevin Yaker, special effects makeup. Oh, yeah. Um, as a as a Friday Thirteenth fan, I love Jason, and Jason is like is the star. But there is a part of me that wonders how interesting of a franchise this could have been if they had committed to that idea more. And I think I, was, I think what especially bothers me is the fact that they tease it two movies in a row and never deliver on it. Yeah. <laughs> but but I I do I I don't know how you feel, Go, but I I do think there's an an alternate universe where we have a, a more like a maybe even more fascinating version of Friday Thirteenth where. There's four Jason films, and then you have like four films with Tommy, the killer, and then that segues into another killer. And I think that could have been really cool if you allow this franchise to evolve, and it's all about this cycle of violence where something happens that sets off the next person. Yeah. And so, yeah, I actually, I, I don't like regret what they, where they went. Well, I, I'm not a big fan. Spoiler alert for our next commentary: uh, the the Roy reveal. Not, I'm not a fan of, but. <laughs> But I, I, I don't think I anybody be, is, honestly. Yeah, but I'm not. I don't regret. Obviously, I love the idea of J- zombie Jason in, in the subsequent yeah. films. But but no, I do. I do actually wish we could have seen Tommy take over as the the primary um, antagonist of yeah, the yeah. series. What do you think? 
No, I love it, but it like it angers me at the same time because everybody wimps out. They wimped out. Halloween yeah. wimped out. Halloween, I think, is the one that like makes me more mad because yeah. I think ultimately I would even more so than want to see Tommy take over. Um, I would have really liked to have seen like Daniel Harris, yeah, like become like the villain of Halloween. Yeah, or at the at the bare minimum, Trev, at the bare minimum, she becomes Michael's like sidekick in training. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. It just, yeah, I hate it when they tease it and they don't do it or anything. And it's like, yeah. I think that's like one thing that's like one of the, to me, one of the star attractions of the Scream series is the fact that you get new killers each time. Yeah. And I think there's something to be said for that where, and I know that that's kind of different because it's always about the mystery of it. Right, right. But but beyond that, I wish I wish some franchise would have the guts to kind of go into it with that being the plan, where they say, like, hey, at about movie three or four, I guess this is like a Saw thing, too, right? It's yeah. the transition from Kramer into Hoffman. Um, so maybe that's why I like that series, too. But yeah, I like that idea of, like, suddenly changing who the villain is. Yeah, I feel like Saw, Saw series was the only ones that actually freaking did it. But mm-hmm. it, it it's like that series is kind of different in that way, but it it's kind of not either because a lot of it has to do with okay it's it's not tobin bell but it's somebody who believes in the same philosophy that yeah he did. and we're still gonna have tobin bell flashbacks up the ass so <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you know what like i like the saw franchise gets a lot of guff and i even tapped out after three theatrically i was like this is just running on and like you know i didn't go back and uh, i went back and watched them on video eventually but i didn't go back to the theater until like i think saw i can't remember what the number was but the, the whatever the one was in 3d i went to see that again and then i kind of like grew a new appreciation for it and rewatching it a couple more times since it's the the series has kind of ended like i know they've had these little spinoffs like jigsaw and then spiral but like I don't know, like, I there's something to me, and it's, I think it's just because I was a kid who grew up with Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, but I appreciate long-running series of any kind. Yeah, no, I do, I do too, I love I love Saw. There was just something nice, like, um, about, and but I I get, like, this is tricky, because I say I love Saw, and I, I miss, like, the, the annual, like, franchise. Yeah. What I will say, though, I didn't, I never got into Paranormal Activity, which was the one that kind of, like, yeah. usurped Saw. I hate like, Paranormal maybe Activity. That, maybe, maybe there's something, yeah, maybe there's something about the found footage, paranormal aspect yeah. of it, but... But if you can give me any kind, of, I, if you could get another one of these running again, like even with, I wasn't a huge fan of Spiral, but like, uh, where's the, I know they're working on it, but why wasn't the Spiral sequel one year later? Like there was something about the forced, I don't want to say ingenuity, because sometimes that's not how it turned out. Yeah. But when you force these filmmakers to come up with a new story and film it and edit it and get it together in only a year, that's what makes these franchises fun and like bizarre and goofy. And like, that's why... That's why we keep revisiting movies like series like Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, which we know some of the sequels aren't as good as the others, but we we don't bypass any of them. We still do these franchise rewatches because they're like interesting. And I think this is a, a strange comment, but I feel like everyone is too precious now and tries to make their franchises too good. Yeah, like they want to put too much thought into the sequels. It's like no, just like crap them out and like we'll we'll be there. Don't worry, we're dumb horror fans, but that's what will make them silly and fun. Well, especially when you have a revolving door of like directors and stuff. It's like you can you can stumble and make a bad one and then recover. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean I'm I mean I'm not saying um, Friday Thirteenth Part Five is a bad movie because I don't I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's objectively a bad movie. I think it's objectively a pretty good movie. But I can understand. Um, fans of the franchise not liking it when it came out but i mean that's a perfect example it's like okay they they rebounded with part six and i think that one just gave the fans exactly back what they wanted you know what i mean um i will say i don't i don't know what your thoughts on the last scream movie was trev but um that is an annual franchise now there is there is uh, the scream six is coming out in march of next year so 
maybe Scream can keep it going for a little bit. Yeah, I hope so. And I think the, the key with Scream, I'll see what's their willingness to start moving beyond Sydney and Gail Weathers and, and transitioning over to the, the younger characters who are introduced in this latest one. But Yeah, like, like that's, that's my thing is um, um, I kind of... I, I like I like the I hate I hate using this term, but I like the legacy characters in the last Scream movie. But I thought you could completely have made the movie without it. And like that's mm-hmm. all I want with Scream is like just make it a, another town on the other fucking side of the country. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like I just want to have a Scream story. Like I still got a few episodes to go, but I actually went through leading up to this latest Scream movie, and I started watching the um, the Scream TV show finally on MTV, which I always wrote off because it was. It was MTV, it was, like, not Ghostface. Eventually, they do bring Ghostface back in the third season, I think. But um, I'm watching it, and I'm like, this isn't as good as the movies to me, but I enjoy the show because it's basically Scream in a new setting, new town, new circumstance, mm-hmm. new, new... You know, there is a mythology to at least the first... Uh, season that i've seen but it's 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 not has nothing to do with ghostface i'm like you can you can just do that with like the scream movie series and like as long as somebody's wearing a ghostface mask that's all that matters yeah yep no i i i liked what i saw the scream show and like yeah did so you saw the new scream film as well yeah 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 i saw i saw it when it hit streaming like whatever that was on paramount plus so I, I liked it quite a bit. I did too. Like honestly, mm-hmm. and like, I, like you know, I watched the you know the non spoiler reviews. Of course, I didn't want it spoiled for me or anything. But I, I watched everybody, not everybody, but I watched quite a few non spoiler reviews when it hit the theaters. And I don't know if it was a thing of expectations or what, but I I, I didn't see one person positive on it. And I watched it, and there was shit that made me cringe in it, like all the whole requel thing, and you know, just the modern whatever. There was definitely cringy shit. But I mean, I don't know. I'm like, this is cool. This scream is back. See, I loved, it. and yeah. I'm su- I'm surprised you said because I felt like most of the feedback I saw. I guess we just follow different kind of people. But I feel like I saw mostly really positive feedback about about that movie. But uh, but I actually like the requel stuff. That's like actually what I like about it because I think I'm not the biggest fan of Scream Four, and I think that's what I mean. like. I, to me, every Scream movie should be commenting on like what is happening right now. Yeah. And that is the thing. Like that's what we 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 have all these you know Ghostbusters Afterlife and these like these these legacy sequels. So I'm glad Scream and even that they made a joke in the movie about you know I was definitely one of those people going into it being like why is this just called Scream you know yeah. why is it Scream Five and the fact that they brought that up in the movie that kind of like forgave it a little bit you know that they like yeah. they they made a point to bring it up as like well that's what horror movies do now they just they're called Halloween or whatever so yeah. So like, yeah Halloween really pissed me off when they did it and then I was disappointed when Scream did it but I was just like. You know, once once they threw that one little line in the movie, I'm like, okay, like I can, you know, but yeah, they're having fun, you know. But yeah, like like I just I just saw all these reviews and people were like, the legacy characters are cool. Every single new character is shit, and I'm like, mm, like they're like I I I don't think put it this way, I don't think they had to have every one of the quote unquote legacy characters in there. I think they could have got away with like maybe just having Dewey or just maybe having Sydney, like maybe just having one would have been good enough for me. But, um, there were some new characters I didn't like. There were some new actors I didn't think were that great, but like overall, I like 75% of them. I liked like, I, it's like, I don't know. Like I, I, maybe I have, (laughs) maybe I have low expectations, Trev, but I kind of just miss the days of like, and I don't want to use this as a cop-out to excuse bad movies or running franchises in the ground, but I kind of miss the days when the fans of a, of a franchise were fans. 
Yeah. No, I'm with you. And I think, like, without, I mean, just in case anyone hasn't seen the new Scream yet, I don't think we'll spoil anything necessarily, no. but I think they finally did some, with in terms of legacy characters, I think they finally went in a direction that I thought the series was overdue to go in yeah. and needed to do. And I also thought there was, like, and I'm sure you'll know what I'm alluding to, there was a return of another legacy character that I did not expect to see that I was like yeah. a genuine surprise to me and I thought it was handled very coolly and I'm actually hoping that even goes further in the sequels so yeah yeah no, I'll, I'll know I know I really quite uh, I, I quite enjoyed it and I liked it too that it was a sequel to all the screams so like it literally was scream five yeah. like they had a character that was only in scream four come mm-hmm. back in scream five and whereas I think the kind of masturbatory nostalgia, whatever requel would be like. No, 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 no. We don't want to. We don't want to because Scream Four was not that well received. I don't. I personally don't mind the movie. I think Scream Four is better than Scream Three, but I hate that thing where it's like we're just gonna leave out all the characters that people like didn't like their movie or whatever. And I'm just like, how about you grow some fucking balls? Okay, yeah. okay. If people didn't like this movie. How about you make it better? How about you make the yeah. characters better? Because if not, what are you doing with this you know, franchise? You're just you know making a cheap buck or just pandering, you know? No, I agree with you there. That's what that's what I like too. Is like I said, I'm, I'm not. I mean, look, here's the thing. I don't like Scream Four, but like to me, a bad Scream movie is still fairly entertaining. Right, right. Yeah. So, and that's the thing is like this is what I mean with the long running franchises is just when you end up with a bad one. You know, it's like Friday the Thirteenth, my favorite franchise. Yeah. I'm not a huge fan of Five. I don't like Part Seven very much. But then you just go okay, well, what can you do with the next one? Can you, like, make up for that? And it's not about saying, like, let's throw it all out. It's just, like, let's move on to the next thing. That's fine. Exactly. I agree. So, yeah, man, it's, uh... I don't want to say it's the best time to be a horror fan, but I I think things are, like, not quite as, like, dim and grim as... I think it's actually... I think it is a really good time to be a horror fan. I think, especially as long as you're a real horror fan. I I, I hate that term because... There are too many dumb horror gatekeepers on like yeah. TikTok and Twitter. Um, I still I bristle at that. Uh, sometimes people bring attention to those videos where someone will call someone not a real horror fan because they say their favorite horror movie is some remake. It's like mm. if you like a horror movie, you're a horror fan, and I'll gladly talk to you about horror. Like whatever your gateway is or whatever you're into. If your favorite thing is Paranormal Activity, fine, cool, we'll still find something. But but what I mean when I so when I say real horror fan, I mean if you're putting in the work to find horror movies right now yeah. and not only looking at what's coming out in the theater, it's a great time to be a horror fan. Cause like the past couple of years, there's been just a, a deluge of like so much like great indie horror on, you know, services like shutter and even, you know, Amazon prime has a lot of interesting smaller ones pop up and yeah, it's, there's a lot of good stuff going on. And, and also too, it's like, yeah, the newer stuff, it's not really as like, uh, well, um, advertise promote it like i get it like which you have to look for it but there's a you know i know we're all sick of the billion streaming service that's coming out you know every week there's a new streaming service but one thing i will say is if if you get a trial of one of these or if you get something go in there and and because there are so many streaming services some old shit that has not been available like for a long time some stuff that's not even available on physical media, you know, since the VHS days is showing up on streaming stuff from the eighties and nineties. So even if you just want to go like me, like I just hunt for old movies, Trev, and I'm finding all kinds of gems and shit that I, I never knew existed. So it's like, mm-hmm. I know exactly what you mean. If you're willing to dig, whether you're somebody who really thrives on new releases or you're somebody who likes old shit, like it's kind of a good time as long as you're willing to do the work to go find some cool shit, you know? Yep. So yeah, Trev. I know we I know we talked a little bit about failure to franchise. Um, 
what's going on with failure to franchise? Are you guys out of movies that have failed the franchise yet? Oh no, we've got we have a list. Um, it's actually accessible through my letterbox page. You can see like the list, and we we're we barely are into it yet. Um, if we keep at the pace we do, which is two a month, uh, I think we're at least good for another three years or so. If that, I mean, maybe even longer. But and like beyond that, it's Hollywood is going to keep doing this. You know? Yeah. Um, like you know, just in recent in recent months, I can think of films like uh, the Three Five Five. You know. Uh, yeah, I still want to see that. I understand yeah. it flop, but I still want to see it. Yeah, but there's there are still things coming along that I we we just assume will be. Um, I think like, uh, you know, now we're getting the streaming things trying to set up franchises. Like there was that Mark Wahlberg Spencer Confidential yeah. that I doubt is getting any sequels. So I, I think we're gonna be okay for a bit. I love Failure to Franchise. I was one of the first people to write a write a review on it. Trevor, I, I I hope hope you don't get mad at me for bringing this up. Um. And I recently got back in it because basically my job changed and it, it got to the point where, because I used to, all day long, man, I just listened to the podcast, podcast, and I couldn't like really do that with my job anymore. So, um, you know, I got behind, but now I, I've gone back to playing video games. So for an, roughly an hour a night, I play NBA 2K20, Trev, not 2K21 or 2K22, 2K20, <laughs> and I I turn the sound down and I listen to Failure to Franchise and uh, yeah, like I'm getting caught up. I'm I'm I think I'm in the middle of November right now, and I and I wrote you a five star review and mm-hmm. everybody else wrote you a five star review. Failure to Franchise has a four point eight out of five on iTunes to tell you how well like this, but there was one person who wrote you a bad review. Do you mind yeah. if I read this bad review? You can. I think. I think. Since I can't remember if we've done it. I'm pretty sure we've actually referenced this review in later episodes that you might not have heard yet. Okay. But but go feel free to read the review. I I'm I'm I can respond to it. Yeah. So so okay. This is kind of recent. Like like us right now. If you guys want to want to leave a review for um, the movie Graveyard, we'd appreciate it. It's been a while since we had one. Um, but this one is kind of recent for failure to franchise drive. This was coming in hot on February fifth, twenty twenty two. And this person gave you a one out of five stars. Now, we also, on Movie Graveyard, we have a one out of five stars, but it was just a rating. They didn't write anything. So I don't know what mm-hmm. they, like, what they didn't, like, like about the show. But, but this this guy, which, I mean, these are, like, fake names anyways. He goes by the name Way to the Dawn, which, is that a reference to a book or a movie? Because I don't, I don't get it. it. It might be, yeah. So anyway, he his subject line is baffled. He was baffled by the failure of the franchise. He says, found this podcast... While trying to find some fresh film takes, and was excited to give this one a try! Exclamation point. However, the conversations are boring and meandering. A lot of movies they cover were never intended to be franchised to begin with, and don't get me started on their terrible theme puns. Hard pass. <laughs> now, first of all, I need to stick up for you. Second of all, I don't know what he means by a lot of the movies were never intended to be franchised because i think they were because <laughs> i remember yeah, I a mean, lot of these we, i mean i think there's only there's been like a couple where there was like there might be more of a question of it but i think in the episodes we usually try to def- we usually explain like what we mean by this or like what we think like the intention might have been of where we think at least at least like there was some thought to like this could maybe spin off into something or whatever so i i, I do wonder what what films because he says films and i wonder right. like what are the multiples that he would point to that would, that would say those were not intended to be franchises? Well, the the thing about the conversations are boring and meandering. Um, 
and I know this is like an awkward thing to be like, Trev, what's your response to it? But I'll just say my personal thing as a fan of the show, I don't find that at all. Like, what I like about the show is you guys, like, you kind of dissect it from both, like, okay, what is your, like, your actual critique of the show? Because there's a lot of the movies you actually stand up for and talk about what you like about it. Oh, of course. But uh, I like the older ones, too, because I, I, you guys kind of do what I do on this show, and I kind of give the background as you guys, a lot of times, if it's an older movie, you mention, like... Like, I was this age, or Chris used to work at a movie theater, and he was like, I actually was working at the theater. with." Like, I like you guys give your point of reference in time of what age you were at and how you, like, you reacted to the film then, how you react to the film now, like, whatever. Like, so, I mean, I don't... I'm trying real hard, and again, there's probably a dozen or so episodes I haven't heard so far. But unless this guy was just, you know, like, I just don't really get what he's he's getting at. Like, and, and honestly, the show is, like, not that long, really. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a lot of episodes that come in closer to the hour mark, and there's some that go, like, 90 minutes. But you guys don't really ramble like I do on here and go, like, th- three I, hours or whatever. I would actually I would actually be down to ramble more. Yeah. That's really I, – I, I give that to Chris. Chris is one who wants to keep this very much an on-topic more podcast. Um, I actually quite enjoy – a lot of the film podcasts I listen to are very um, tangent and divergent kind of led, and I actually yeah. – like that like that's one thing i like about doing the show with you i know we have to we're doing it right now we will finish the commentary and then yeah. we'll just bs for a while yeah um but no that's like chris's thing that's and that's fine by me but like yeah that kind of review look, i'm not bothered by it you can only look at it and laugh i mean yeah. when someone says like well the, the puns are terrible i mean yeah. puns are meant to be terrible the, the, you know like that's that's the, that's the magic that's the magic of puns right they're like we we know they're bad like that's I, so I, yeah i think the, i think that's the thing i take more issue with in this bad review is like the puns are meant to be bad i've like chris will even groan at them when you do yeah nobody's trying nobody in the history of puns nobody's mm-hmm. trying to make a good pun no. that's not the point of puns the point of puns and dad jokes are you are you are making a bad joke but uh yeah, whatever I, what, hey look i don't not everybody has to like our show that's fine right, so so whatever but yeah i mean the description you guys put out is bi-weekly podcast devoted to infamous examples of failed film franchise starters in a Hollywood landscape dominated by giant tempo movies not all attempted franchises can succeed many intended first entries of series fail to generate planned sequels due to low box office poor judgment or simply put utter incompetence show is a celebration of or perhaps a memorial for those failures as hosts Trev and Chris dissect what went wrong with these cinematic misfires it's like I don't think there's any false advertising, and I don't think you guys fail to live up to that mission statement whatsoever. Well, thank you, I appreciate it. Uh, if I can, if I can give a little preview of something, because I know this is right up your alley, go. So this is like the perfect show for me to talk about this. Let's do so it. I think now that you're getting back into it, now that I know you, you I, and I have known you enjoy the show. So as you know, we like to kind of work in theme months and and like runs. Mm-hmm. Um, I like so. That. Yeah, so we will once again this summer be doing a summer surprise, which we quite like last summer, where we put a bunch of the movies we have and just into a randomizer and, and let the, the computer pick for us. So we're going to do four episodes about that. But then uh, I was able to talk Chris into a, a, a three-month run, which I believe is, is, you're going to love. Uh, so you, you do need to get caught up. Because starting in August, we are doing a, um, a three-month run of episodes, which we're calling Fall Back to the 80s. Mm. And we're going all 80s. Wow! And I and I can I can tell you I will reveal it here. As a, this is breaking news on on movie graveyard. I can tell you the films we'll be covering from August through October on Failure to Franchise. Do it. And that and that will be Flash Gordon, oh. The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. Wow. Streets of Fire. Oh yes. 
Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins. Fuck yeah. Masters of the Universe. Oh, I think I just came. And for our Halloween episode, Shocker. Oh, amazing. Amazing. Yeah. I gotta say, I didn't think anything was going to... uh, was going to top um Mela Junovich. Yeah. But I was very, very blown away and surprised by how much I love Summer Surprise. So yeah. the the one two punch two of Assassin's Creed and Dylan Dog Dead of Night. Which which this might <laughs> Dylan Dog Dead of Night, by the way, one of our least popular episodes, one of our least downloaded. <laughs> that, that's it's just cause nobody knows it exists. The yeah, movie. That's the like, thing. Nobody knows yeah. it exists. I gotta say I told I listened to those two episodes recently too, like probably those two I probably heard you guys talk about like less than two weeks ago. It's it's good when you can like I mean I don't know how much I disagree with you. The, I get those are two like slog movies which I actually kind of enjoy. Like they're not great, but they're good like time fillers for me. But I like like even though you get you guys rip both those the shreds you guys did it like as intelligently and you went as far as you possibly could to try to dig out what redeeming qualities you could you know what i mean mm-hmm. it, yeah. it's not a show about hate and like no I, like honestly like like i mean i don't know you know like maybe you guys would be more popular if you were just hating and putting on an act and shitting on everything but like you know paul Shear has that <laughs> angle covered mm-hmm. you know what yeah. i mean like you guys don't yeah. need to be like that yeah, my mission statement on the show for me is never to say a movie failed because it sucks and just stop there. There's always something else there because, you know, a lot of like not great movies have gone on to be successes and gotten franchises. So we try to look more into like what what exactly like, what wasn't working, what weren't people responding to. But yeah, I think there are some movies that I see that I outright hate for sure. Um, but I don't know that we've watched too many of those on that show. And like I, I this is a conversation I have with like Bird and Jelly and some of our other buddies a lot. I don't think there's anything wrong with just being a movie fan right and like and going into most movies wanting to be entertained and like sometimes you get accused of having like low standards on that or being too forgiving of things and look i can get i can get sick and bored of things like i'm i'm up and down on the mcu like right now i'm in a pretty like kind of whatever kind of period with the mcu and then there's other things that are higher on it but but in general like i i try to find positives in movies you know and like i i i don't see why it yeah the negativity around movie discourse this is coming some like how um getting too involved in like film twitter um it does it bums me out like we're supposed to like be having fun with these things and so even like the shittier movies it's maybe fun to talk about like well what could have been like what could have worked there like what could have been and that's what i like doing you know there's the segment uh trevor rewrites the movies on that show where i'll try to love that what you could have done yeah where i think what you could have done a little differently um so yeah to me that's more fun to to find the, the the diamonds in the rough even in like the the most rough movies oh uh, yeah you, you you can't as much as a hater as i get pegged for it, you you won't imagine how many times i've rewritten the disney star wars tri- uh, sequel trilogy oh, yeah. so i mean i totally get where the urge is it's just like you feel bad for filmmakers that like you know sometimes you just miss the mark by a wide wide mile but sometimes you see people and it's just like you were three-fourths of the way there. If you just could have tweaked a few things and went in this mm-hmm. direction, you know what I mean? Yep. But, but but that's your controversial side of podcast. Trevor, why don't you give a quick plug, too, for your bread and butter, the show that never never gets a hateful review. Everybody loves. It's the one that the millions tune into, your other podcast. 
Uh, well, to be fair, actually, I think we had one bad review a while back on the show, years ago, when because I, I think we uh, people were mad that we were making fun of DC movies. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> so it's not surprising. Maybe I think some of the I think a Snyder bro might have might have got at us, but uh, <laughs> but I believe that is uh, of course uh, Days of Future podcast, yeah. which you're talking about, which is a little bit more irregular of a show. We have a hard time keeping a consistent schedule on that because of uh, uh, you know our schedules, but uh, but you know we're chugging along and. We have recently started to um, do video episodes. We just did, uh, did our first video episode. You can go be watched on YouTube, and we're gonna uh, we're gonna do some more of those. Um, sometimes it's just us. I, I think we, it's, we're just kind of working on Zoom now, so we figured we could like actually record it, people could watch. And we're we're trying to think of some ways to do uh, maybe some comic book reviews where we can show like the pages on the video and everything. But yeah, that's my show dedicated to uh, all X Men talk. Um, I think we're finally it's it's getting exciting because we're finally moving into the initial steps of the X Men starting to show up in the MCU. Yeah. So we'll finally have a little bit more to talk about because there's already quite a lot of podcasts that cover X Men comics, and so we do occasionally review like storylines and certain old classic stories. But we've always been more interested in finding like weird, obscure X Men stuff to talk about or the TV shows and movies. And so we haven't had as much to talk about since the Fox franchise kind of kind of went away. Yeah. Um, obviously, I think the show will find a new life once we once we get some Disney Plus stuff going. And of course, we know that. Disney Plus is bringing back the X-Men cartoon and, and stuff like that. So so we'll have more to talk about soon. I do have that one negative. I found that negative review you referenced. Can I read that one too? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Share all my failures with me. <laughs> it's not a failure. Okay, you have 68 ratings and you got one bad written review. That's not bad at all. One star out of five coming out of, coming out of hot. Writer fan 215. And this was way back on April 6, 2016. His yeah. subject line is, this is an X-Men podcast, yeah. not a DC bashing podcast. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about when it comes to DC. BVS was fantastic. Shut up about what you don't understand. No period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder what he, like, what does he think we don't understand? Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, not to be like one of those guys, but I mean, I've, I've read Batman and Superman comics since I was a kid. I, I understand the characters. And like, ultimately, and here's the thing, like, even my, my mentality on that has evolved to the point of, I just don't like it. You know, like, I don't, I don't care if other people like Man of Steel or BBS. It's just, that's not the version of characters I like and respond to. So, well, I don't know. Like, it's also weird too. Like, I feel like you guys, which, which I have, I'm way, way farther behind and I probably will never be able to catch up with Days of Future podcasts, but I've listened to dozens of episodes and you guys definitely, like, you guys get to the point where, like, and there are actually some of my favorite um, episodes where you guys talk about obscure, like, X-Men comic arcs and characters and stuff. It's like, if I were to tune into a, um, a let's say I, there's a podcast that's all about the history of the, the fast food chain McDonald's, right? And these guys are telling all of me everything I want to know about the McDonald's brothers, Ray Kroc, and everything. And then they occasionally go on the tangent about about how much Taco Bell sucks, and they hate Taco <laughs> Bell. I'm not going to hold it against them, even if I'm a Taco Bell lover as well, because... I was going to say, by the way, I would never do that, because I love Taco Bell. Oh, yeah, Taco Bell. But they need to bring back that fucking pizza, bro. <laughs> they are. It's coming back. Okay, yeah. Not limited time. We need it back for good. But, like... I would be like, okay, you're delivering on your mission statement of telling me all about Ronald McDonald and the Hamburglar. You can piss on some, uh, you know, beefy cheese burrito, whatever shit, if you want to. You know what I mean? Like, it's not that big of a deal. So, yeah, whatever. Yeah, 
It is. Hey, hey go before we wrap up. There was like uh, like months ago when we we weren't sure when we were going to record again. Yeah. I, I mentioned to you that next time we record, there's something I want to talk to you about on mic. Mm. And so can we can we can we do that just quickly? Trev, I have starved the 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 loyal and faithful movie graveyard listeners for three months of any shows we can run a little bit over so please ask okay. me the que- the dying well, question that well, you needed because, to ask me because this <laughs> this is a return to one of maybe our our longest ongoing debates disagreements and it's 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 something i just want to ask you about because i'm always curious to see if, if, if views have evolved and and that's i'm not looking to change any opinions you know, I, if you still feel this way i'm not going to try to uh you know um, change your mind or anything but i am curious about something because I recently, earlier this year, bought a new film book. And I don't know if you read books about film as often as I do. It's obviously one of my favorite like, nonfiction to. books to I read. Yeah. Okay, so, I, I'm a fan, so I'm a huge fan of, of film books. And I think maybe I've talked before about how I'm, a, I'm especially a fan of oral histories. I love mm-hmm. books that are just um, mostly like um, accumulations of interviews from people involved in a historical event or something. That's my favorite kind of history book to read because I think yeah. you get, you know, it's you know, history is made up of people's memories. And I think it's interesting to see everybody's memories because sometimes they contradict. Sometimes people have different opinions. Like I remember reading um, an oral history on the making of Buffy and Angel and how um, some people said David Boreanaz was like a huge dick and other people said he was very nice. So I think it's like cool and you get to see both perspectives, right? Did anybody say Joss Whedon was a bully? <laughs> yeah, that's one of the first books that really got into the whole Joss okay. Whedon, uh, Charisma Carpenter thing. So, um, so... I recently, I don't know if you heard about this or, or whatever, but earlier this year, there was a book called uh, Blood, Sweat, and Chrome, which is the oral history of the making of Mad Max Fury Road. Hmm. And I absolutely loved this book. Uh, I just, I can't recommend it enough to people who enjoy that film, but also just are interested in filmmaking or George Miller and his career. And the reason I, I wanted to recommend the book to you and also hear if you heard anything about it, or but also just ask if you've like, if, if there's any change in your opinion from before, because I know, and, I, and I'm not looking to see if you like that movie anymore now, mm-hmm. but I remember when we first debated it and when you were like less interested in it than I was and you were more critical of the whole like existence of that movie, one of your main kind of go-to things was you didn't like that it didn't feel like a real Mad Max because it didn't feel as practical yeah. and uh, and everything. And this is a book, I'm sure you've, I don't know if you've seen anything about like the making of it more so since, but we've, we've I think we've had this discussion before. But in the years since that book came out, there's definitely been more documentary work and stuff. And this book is a big part of it to reveal how that movie was like a practical, like uh, effects masterpiece. And and like of like how much crazy stunt work went into that movie and the fact that they built all these vehicles and just how dangerous and how intense that filming was. And how, yes, like the the uh, the sandstorm sequence is CGI, but pretty much everything else in it is very much not CGI. Uh, Maybe obviously some CGI enhancements, but everything has that now. But I was just curious if like that, if you've kind of come around at least on that and like, cause like reading this book, it really, and I'll, but the other thing is like why I want to recommend it to you is I actually feel like reading the book, even if it doesn't change your opinion on the movie itself, I think you'll come away being more impressed with what that movie was and, and like, and what, how it kind of, how George Miller went about it. Because reading the book, it actually very much was a case of George Miller fighting the studio so much through like the, the period of that. And it definitely does feel like very scrappy and to the spirit of old George Miller, there's a great story in there about how the studio didn't want to pay for them because you know they were supposed to film originally in like um, I think it was like where was it? I can't remember where, where originally they were going to film, but something happened and they had to move the whole production to like a different place. 
and they had all the vehicles built and they had to take that like two year wait. <laughs> and yeah. so they, they had to move the vehicles and the studio didn't want to pay for it. And so they just said like, well, all right. And then they like, but they went ahead and did it anyways. And then once they were like halfway there, they're like, well, they're already halfway there. You, you have to pay for it now. So just like it read, I was reading, I was like, oh, this is stuff I know Goat would respond to. Cause I know Goat loves when filmmakers just like say, F it and like put their foot down and make the movie they want to make and fight the studio. Yeah. And like what a passion project that movie was for such a long time. And you read this, and you, I, 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 you, you can get emotional reading it because it's like this is a movie he wanted to make since the 80s. And it just took him forever to make it and how long and how much he just like never gave up. And like the bizarreness of it and like the fact that it was like not a script, but just a series of illustrations and how the cast just didn't even understand. And that led to the cast like feeling like lost and not knowing what they're doing out there. And obviously that led to the big. Tom Hardy and Charlie Theron hating each other. It's, and, and they're very honest about that and that as well, about very interesting stories with the clashes between the two of them. So I, I do think you should read it. I think it's very interesting, but I'm also just curious, like does, just knowing that stuff and, and knowing that, man, it was like all practical, almost all practical, does that change how you feel about it at all? I, I mean, yes and no. I, I feel like the practical thing was shoved down our throats from the get-go. And like I actually felt like they oversold, like even from the initial hype, like how practical it was. And I wasn't aware of the book. I mean, it, the title sounds familiar, but I haven't like heard any of that information from it or anything, so I'm not really familiar with it. But um, uh, I think I saw the screenshot somewhere on my phone. But like, I I've been filling out Warner Brothers surveys for years, and they don't really give me much for it. I think I've gotten a couple digital codes over the years, and that's it, which I don't really care about. But uh, they gave me a Curly Sue digital code. <laughs> but, like, they were, like, one of the things was, like, and it was back when, like, everybody was swearing up and down. Like, before any of the behind-the-scenes shit really came out, before the disc had come out and all the special feature shit came out. And everybody was swearing up and down that the movie was a 1,000%, 150% practical. And then Warner Brothers was, like, did you, like, one of the questions was, like, what did you like about Mad Max Fury Road? Did you like the, it was, like, and it had just, like, a list of things, the characters, the this and it was like the cgi action scenes and i'm like was that just like an oversight like why would they put that and then like i've seen some of the stuff where it's like it is practical but like you said like the the thing doesn't flip over and then they drag the thing for a while on cables and then they edit out the cable so like i mean i don't know like i appreciate i've also watched the movie more times since then and i've actually purchased a, <laughs> the movie a bunch of times i bought the 3d version i bought the black and chrome version i really like the black and chrome version i i i, uh, I think i appreciate that probably a, a lot more than most people do i mean i've definitely softened on it trev don't get me wrong i definitely softened on it i definitely like the movie um but for sure what you're really getting out here is i think i think looking back in hindsight and whatever, even though I was wasn't high on the movie originally, is like because th they do want to make another one, and they are making it supposedly or making it soon, and it's been a struggle. And George Miller had to sue Warner Brothers because um, they they weren't living up to their contractual needs mm -hmm. with him. And it's like, of course, like and jo George Miller, like he wasn't a young man when he made Mad Max Fury Road. He's definitely. A, a less younger man now i mean it's the time is ticking by so fast now like even you know the main uh villain from uh, fury road unfortunately passed away a couple years ago it's like yeah, i appreciate all that and like i appreciate the fact that he from what you're saying and i and i kind of like watching the road that warner brothers in general has gone down and don't get me wrong warner brothers is a studio i like i don't 
I don't hate them. I don't have as many bones to pick with them as I do about Disney. But I do appreciate that, like, the things like what you're saying, and it's kind of come out in retrospect, the, the battles he's had with them over the years since Fury Road was released. I do appreciate that he forced them to be a real movie studio for once mm-hmm. in their fucking yeah. lives. You know what I mean? Like, That's actually when I read the book and, like, you read about how... So I, I think that, the, the, like, one of the, the biggest takeaway from me of the book is, like, you're just so happy for him because it yeah. was so it was such a long road for him to get that yeah. movie made. Like I said, like it was so many delays, so many times they were about to go. They tell a story. I never realized how close they were to filming it that one time to where yeah. they had all the vehicles built. They had it's interesting because like it's one thing one thing the book is kind of missing is like they they flat out admit that they were like weeks away from production and then there was that thing where they had to shut down because of uh like nine eleven and everything. Yeah. Um and changing things. And and it doesn't really say in there entirely who is cast in all the parts. I wish they got a little bit more into that. Yeah. Um there were some interesting if you heard any kind of like viral stories from the book, one of them might have been that one of the actors that George Miller briefly considered to play Mad Max was Eminem, which wow. is like insane until I you think do I you did remember hear that. Until you remember that how actually strong Eminem's performance was in Eight Mile, and that's apparently what George Miller yeah. was like responding to. But uh but yeah, like um so how long it took him to make that. But yeah, like the other point I was about to make is being off what you just said, is it's it's really surprising reading that book. And just reading about how much he fought Warner Brothers in that movie and like what he had to put up with. And then at the end of the book, they go like, so anyways, he's about to make Furiosa for Warner Brothers. And you're like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. how, like, just the way Hollywood works to where like how quickly just with money, people are just like, well, let's just try this again. You're like, and like, oh, OK, I guess. But well, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure the book probably gives a little bit of the background, too. But I, the one thing that I was just always thought fascinating was like literally the only reason they kind of entertained him and shit and he was able to even get the ball rolling on it was the fact that he made them so much money with fucking happy feet. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, they, they get into that. And it was yeah. also like one of those things where like, it's always the case, right? This is the story you hear uh, a thousand times if you're a movie fan of like one person working at Warner Brothers who likes him and likes and gets the vision, you know, and like signs off it. And everybody else in the studio being, what is this? What are we spending money on? And they said, especially as they, there was, there did come a point, and you've heard, you hear about this happening all the time too, where the footage that was getting sent back to them was, you couldn't understand it, right? Because yeah. the way he films, the the cast didn't understand it because he doesn't, he, you know, every shot is something he has meticulously planned. And they say like he would spend like a whole day being like, we got to get the shot of the foot coming down the gas pedal. And Shelly Stern's like, why are we doing this? And he's just yeah. like, trust me, because they don't know how it edits together. He has that yeah. in his head, right? Um, and eventually Warner Brothers sent like minders out to set and they talk in the story about how they had to do that thing where they try to distract them. <laughs> and like, you know, like, what do we do? Like, what do we do to keep the minders? Like, because they would probably try to shut this down. So, yeah. Well, I'm sh- I'm, yeah. I'm sure, too, that bizarre footage of Tom Hardy trying to escape the cave or whatever in the beginning, how it's like, it's literally like hand cranked like a fucking 1913 yeah. <laughs> Charlie Chaplin movie. I'm sure that really had Warner Brothers like doing spit takes in the screening room and like. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I appreciate, you know, it's kind of funny that you say that, though, is, and I fully admit this, um, this is probably a fault of my own, is that that version, like, around 2001 or whatever, I think I always held it against Fury Road that it wasn't that version, that that version didn't get made, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, well, like that's that was the movie I wanted, what they were going to make, but. And I, and I get that, and I think, like, when you read the book, that is, and whether you, like, how much you believe them or how much it matters to you, like, they say in there, like, Ultimately, George Miller says things happen for a reason, and it's like you know that delay allowed them to like work on it even harder and work on it more and like build like work on the vehicles longer. That was like one thing that I find mo- like maybe the most interesting thing in the book was them talking to all the people who designed those vehicles and talking about like, how much work went into that. 
and like the, the impressive amount of detail. And it made me like now every time I watch the film, I think I'll like be even more like locked into that of saying like, you look at every single piece of those vehicles. Like that was all something we thought about and like the etchings in that and like every piece of it was put together. And it's these, they're like these work of arts. And they talk about how, how sad it was at the end to just watch that all get like kind of scrapped. And it does make you wonder why they didn't try to make some effort to kind of make like a Fury Road museum or exhibit somewhere, you know, to like save all that stuff. But well, yeah, he, he George Miller has such a long history with Warner Brothers too. It's like um, I'm a fan of Joss Whedon's Frankenstein Justice League. I'm a big fan of Zack Snyder's Justice League. But the Justice League movie I always wanted the most was George Miller's Justice League, mm-hmm. which also apparently came really close to shooting, and for whatever yeah. reason, yeah. Well, yeah, because his Wonder Woman ended up in Fury Road. Um, yeah, Megan Gale. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, that's just another uh, personally. You know, you know me. Uh, what what does the Colonel guy say in Boogie Nights? I'm a simple man. I like butterscotch in my mouth and lollipops in my ass or something like that. Yeah. I'm a simple man, and I still maintain. Trev, I think Neil Marshall's Doomsday did it better. Ugh, I can't. I mean, I, I enjoy Doomsday for what it is, but I, yeah. I certainly don't agree with that. To me, I maybe I'm a simpleton. Maybe I'm just uh, harping on like what other people on film Twitter or whatever say, but. Yeah. I'm still that mentality. I think Fury Road is one of, if not like the best movies of like this century. Like I just, I love it. Speaking of which, have you seen that new Neil, Neil Marshall movie he made starring uh, his girlfriend Charlotte Kirk? His crazy girlfriend? No, yeah. um, I've I've not. Yeah. Not I, that I'm, I, I'm not. I'm not avoiding it for any reason. No, I, just haven't, I want to see it. it. Sounds interesting. Yeah. I am. Uh, I gotta admit, I am fascinated by the Charlotte Kirk uh, saga. And I, I really hope, like, not just, like, a shitty, like, tabloid movie. I really would like somebody to make a, 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 a I don't know, a drama movie about that situation and what happened. But I mean, she'd probably be willing to star in it, I'm sure. Like, Yeah, why not do it? Well, yeah, why not? I mean, you know, but I don't know. It's just interesting. It frustrates me because just because I feel like Neil Marshall could be doing more interesting stuff you know like mm-hmm. he's a director to me like does not really lived up to his potential i guess or in recent years and i think that i think the charlie kirk thing really did was a distraction he didn't need but i i i, I I'd, yeah like i i kind of think with neil marshall i think it's less of his career failed i don't think he made a disaster thing i i think he was trying to resurrect his uh, career or try to get his career heated back up with the Hellboy reboot. And I think that's what sunk him probably for good, mm-hmm. unfortunately, really. Yeah. But yeah. I still like his early stuff quite a bit, though. So. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So, yeah, Tre- Trev, I got to give you a thousand thanks, buddy. I have been offline for quite a while. And you were always there, always always supportive, ready to uh, actually record a different episode we had in mind. Mm-hmm. But uh, it took me quite a while longer than I originally thought to get back online here and recording again. Um, and it just, the, the calendar creeped up and I was like, oh damn, man, like we're going to miss our, our yearly Friday the 13th show. And you, uh, you, you dropped all your, your pots and pans that you had to uh, make this happen in a short time frame. And I appreciate that so much. And it was it was as fun as always, and I'm already looking forward to uh, to next year when we can do another Friday the Thirteenth. Yeah, of course. Even though it's uh, even though it's part five, uh, I'm uh, yeah. I'm also excited. Um, yeah, and I'm also and I'm still excited about the other episode we have planned. So. Yeah, I am too. I'm really that like that's one of the ones I've been looking forward to for a long time. So yeah, we'll, I'm sure we'll get that soon. Strangely enough, I forgot to ask you this question, but I meant to ask you this question. So we'll, we'll actually wrap this up with Friday the Thirteenth. Um. 
do you have any knowledge or any like anything did these movies like when they did the gimmick of releasing them on friday the 13th did they do better or do you think that was ever a factor or people were just so crazed with slashers they didn't give a shit because some of them were released on friday the 13th and some weren't yeah, I don't think I, I, because Friday Thirteenth is not like a real holiday, you yeah. know. Like it's just a thing that comes up and be like, oh, it's Friday Thirteenth. I I can't imagine it really moved the needle. Yeah. I, I don't I don't like. I guess what I'm saying is, I don't know if I can actually imagine a real. I think it's entirely hypothetical, and I can't imagine an actual person who's like, well, <laughs> I would go see Friday Thirteenth, but it's not coming out on a Friday Thirteenth. You know, yeah. that's not the same as like a Halloween coming out in August, which was always stupid. Yeah, you know. Yeah. But like Friday Thirteenth, it doesn't matter when you release it. It's people are going to go check. The, the slasher fans are going to come out for that, and whatever the whatever the date is, it's released on. Yeah, I think the studio probably initially because I know this one they really pressured Zito to to like he he only finished the movie a couple of days before they had to like make the prints and send it out to theaters. I think initially the studio probably thought it was this huge marketing gimmick, and I know probably Sean Cunningham did. But as time went on, they were probably like, "Hey, we still want to make some money, and there's no Friday Thirteenth coming up." So. You know. <laughs> Well, go. Let me ask you one last Friday Thirteenth question to, yeah. to wrap up. Um, because we have not gotten a new one in now over ten years, and it's yeah. not looking great anytime soon. Mm. Uh, are, have you at all waded your into the waters of Friday Thirteenth fan films to to like scratch that itch? Because there's a, a crap ton of them. To, to I, check I, out. not recently, but I have, and I got to mm-hmm. say, the Friday Thirteenth uh, fan films. I've seen a couple decent ones. Which, by yeah. the way, they. The, the Blu-rays or DVDs, at some point, they were doing these short films and then putting them on there. And, like, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, they were kind of bad. you know Yeah, like, they were I'm, terrible. Yeah. I know they had zero budget. But I was like, the fan films are better than these. They should just contact the fans and, like, make them and say, oh, here's a little, you know, licensing fee or whatever. But, um yeah, and I got to say, um I think the biggest one a couple years ago was Never Hike Alone. Yeah, which I like that one. Yeah, I do too. And I got to say, it, it, for a little bit, it, it kind of got me like, well, if they're not going to give us you know, what a, what we want, like I'll just watch these. And I watched some uh, some Halloween ones. Unfortunately, I didn't find similar success in the Halloween fan films. And then for a little while, I was hot and heavy on the Star Wars fan films. And then I was just, I crashed and burned on those. So I have not gone back to fan films but ironically, the best ones I have ever seen, and I don't know if it's just because the premise is more simplistic or what, but it, it is the Friday Thirteenth fan films. Yeah, no, I agree with that. That's what I mean. Like, I think actually it is a it is a nice way to scratch the itch right now because ultimately the fan films, to me, are actually really indicative of what we were just saying. We liked about the original iteration of the franchise is it just feels like they're they're scrappy, they're cheap, they're quickly put together, and and yeah. I, I actually agree with you that. I would be entirely fine if, like, the way that this franchise eventually comes back is they just say, well, every year we'll just give a group of fans a budget and, like, let yeah. them go off and make, like, whatever Friday 13th movie they want. Because, again, I don't, there's no reason to be precious with this franchise. Right. You know, it doesn't have to be like, oh, we got to, who's, like, the, the most up and coming horror filmmaker? Like, it's different. Like, there's different, like, I would love to see Mike Flanagan do Nightmare on Elm Street. I think that would be awesome, but I I don't need him to do Friday Thirteenth. Get give right. Friday Thirteenth like anybody, whatever. Just give me a fun guy in a hockey mask killing people in the woods. So the, the fan films actually oftentimes are uh, are pretty fun, I think. And also too, you know, like this is just another debate. Obviously, we don't have time at this point to get into, but I gotta say. Even if it meant we had to wait an extra five, ten years, like I don't want to see Friday Thirteenth streaming either. <laughs> make it a yeah. make it a theatrical movie because there's just too much 
there's just too much history with these films and the theatrical mm-hmm. runs. Like the theatrical runs actually are what made these movies legendary, honestly. Yep. So yeah, so again, a million thanks, Trev, and I want to thank you, the listeners, for hanging in there. I, I gotta say thank you for for sure, Trev, because I had so many people encourage me, check in on me. They noticed that the the episodes were absent for a couple months. So you listener guys, thank you for. Uh, you know, it was nice talking to you, some of you guys I corresponded with, and thank you. And uh, it's nice to know we're making this show for actually people that want to listen to it, right, Trev? Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's uh, it's a show I like listening to, so it's nice to know other people are out there checking it out. So, Absolutely. So until next time, have fun, everybody, and we'll see you again soon in the movie graveyard. Mm-hmm.